session of the Corona Committee, session number 89, with the image uh, of disambiguities. These are pictures where you see one image and uh, then you look again and the whole picture looks different. And this is what we see in the real world today and in the corona events, corona-related events. So the committee was founded nearly two years ago with the aim of looking at the virus development and uh, analyzing everything around it. And it's very fascinating, the findings that we have come up with also in our last session with details that one was not aware of before. And I think we're going to carry on with interesting guests today as well. Rainer, we are in person here together again. Rainer has come back and maybe you could just give us a little introduction. You brought some things along. Yes, we have a few videos to start with and to end this meeting today. <coughs> Something we were going to say uh, as well at the beginning of the meeting is that we will try to um, get the context of the various uh, pieces of the puzzle that we're talking about. We have been spoke speaking about, uh, of course, Corona, uh, which will be the core uh, and the focus of this meeting. But we've been looking at um, uh, the Ukrainian story as well. And um, we need somebody to uh, give us the background of the Great Sea uh, Reset. Um, just to make it clear, because some people say we only hear, uh, want to hear about Corona. No, we have to make clear, uh, clear that we have to look out of the box, outside the box a bit, and we will um, piece um, those um, parts of the puzzle together. Um, both are taking place at the same time, even though the Ukrainian crisis is taking center stage. But let's start with uh, Dr. Renata Holzeisen. And um, to introduce this, we have two short videos. Um, first, the first one relating to Draghi, who, in my view, is one of the puppets um, who is being manipulated by others. And uh, we can see how the population in Naples isn't too happy with Mr. Draghi. And then we have a very short video of Mr. Harry, the um, uh, people-hater um, number one, who says we have too many people anyway in the world. And then before Renate starts, we have a publication by uh, Professor Dr. Martin Schwab. And I think that's a very important publication. But let's start with a clip by Mr. Draghi. Yeah. 
Ja, in Neapel scheint well, Draghi nicht ganz so viele Freunde zu haben. Mr. Draghi doesn't have to, uh, seem to have so many friends in Naples. Maybe it's the same story across Italy. Now, the reason why these people, um, those people who we feel are puppets, why they're not trusted, it's a very short video by Mr. Harari. Uh, we've seen him before, but now he says even clearer where we're headed political and economic question of the 21st century will be what do we need humans for or at least what do we need so many humans for do you have an answer in the book um at present the best guess we have is uh, keep them happy with drugs and computer games and we call this the metaverse what you guys do in here pretty much yeah. everything that you would do in the real world or at least what do we need so many humans for would constitute a new useless class. When I say that these are useless humans, it's not from the viewpoint of their mother, of the wife, of the, of the son, or at least what do we need so many humans for? First, we've got population. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. Or at least, what do we need so many humans for? Forget the conspiracy. Listen to our government agencies. These guys are telling the truth. You know, there's no conspiracy here, folks. Just right. get your damn vaccine. All right. All right. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> yeah, um, very, very scary people. We don't know if they are humans. I think we can't believe a word of what they normally tell us but one person with both feet firm on the ground as a quick uh, impression before we move on to renata um i would like to read this out from professor dr schwab the who uh, compares normal people just wanting to live their life back as neo-nazis uh, banalizes their agenda the real um, stranger and racistic agenda if they try the attempt to move corona protests through the right wing corner um, is not only substanceless but also um, endangers our culture of remembrance. I am not going to step one single millimeter down from what I say. And as we know, Martin Schwab, he is serious about the, what he says here. So now let's move on and turn to uh, Renate Holzeisen. What happened in Nepal? Well, Naples, of course, is a very special place in Italy. But by now, there has been a, a shift of mood that it represents, which uh, permeates uh, the entire Italian population. The uh, top economic expert, Mario Draghi, who was uh, exalted beyond all means, who had been forwarded as the savior of Italy, even during his tenure as head of the ECB, is now proving 
in all his faults as someone who has neither political acumen nor the necessary empathy. For many months, he has only been able to impose his uh, measures, his uh, corona measures, by uh, votes of confidence. So he keeps blackmailing uh, MPs, and the MPs are willing to be blackmailed because we have a parliament composed of puppets. Those are people who are likely never ever again to earn as much money as they do now as MPs because an MP in Italy earns a very high wage that he gets from the state and it is to be expected that about 80% of uh, these people will not be re-elected and they of course are stuck to their seats. Draghi is aware of that and that's why he keeps uh, submitting uh, measures for votes of confidence. So he says uh, either you support this measure or else there'll be a uh, governmental crisis. And so they know that if they want to look after their own economic interests, they have to vote in favor of the government measures. And this is how the most absurd so-called COVID-19 measures have been imposed all the way down now to the decision about the enormous weapons deliveries to Ukraine. And this is something that public opinion um, has um, well, public opinion has been uh, turned on its head concerning its uh, view of the government because we know from reliable surveys, surveys that were started by the institutions, that more than half the Italians are expressly against such deliveries of weaponry. And uh, overall, are uh, opposed to the uh, warmongering activities specifically of the Italian government. And we have a situation where the Italian economy is uh, increasingly and obviously suffering. And of course it is above all the small and medium-sized enterprises that are suffering. We have many, uh, well, thousands of bars and restaurants so there are umpteen thousands of uh, bars and restaurants that had to close and will probably never open again because due to the lockdowns, the absurd um, uh, vaccination and testing requirements um, from April on, um, you, uh, people only have to at least have a test, but even so, in the field of um, hospitality, um, 
these measures have created a lot of damage. And of course, uh, this was covered up for a while, but now is becoming uh, explosively visible, leading to widespread unhappiness um, and dissatisfaction among Italian in parts of the Italian population. So people have huge economic problems. People save where um, public investments are required in um, the field of um, in the medical field, for instance, there they um, save money and we know where they uh, waste money on testing and experimental vaccines, etc. And at the same time, a lot of money, huge amounts of money are um, invested into weapons deliveries to Ukraine and the population doesn't agree with that. Uh, it's just too crass, this mismatch. And then uh, there are such activities and measures such as that the Italian Health Ministry accepts Ukrainian uh, health workers and doctors without any proof of language uh, knowledge and without any need to subject themselves to COVID-19 uh, vaccinations, simply hiring them to uh, replace uh, Italian health workers who legitimately have opposed forced vaccinations since June of last year uh, without any uh, wage payments. So that is uh, something that any uh, reasonably uh, thinking citizen will have to um, be opposed to. So health workers from Italy who uh, think for themselves are being penalized health workers who have found out, have, have uh, informed themselves about um, the uh, vaccines and have been vindicated by now because we know by now that the vaccines cannot stop um, uh, infection or um, spreading of the disease. So all of the health workers who opposed these measures and did not uh, accept them should be considered to be specifically qualified because they had the uh, they were forward-looking enough to see this but the exact opposite happens in italy only recently with the latest government measure was the covid 19 vaccine mandates uh, extended to the end of this year for the health workers. So in Italy, since the 1st of April of last year, we've had the obligation for health workers, um, which includes, of course, um, uh, nursing homes for the um, elderly to get vaccinated. Otherwise, they are sent home without um, any um, pay 
and independent physicians are suspended by the uh, doctors, uh, by the medical chamber. Then they are, uh, unless they are recovered, and then they have a grace period of only uh, three months so far. So, even if health workers and doctors have recovered from COVID-19, they were not uh, taken uh, back into the fold of the health services, uh, no matter how many uh, antibodies they could prove they had. And now they are uh, given a grace period of no more than three months. So the way the Italian state has been handling its qualified staff in the health um, in the field of uh, healthcare is obviously geared uh, towards penalizing those who think independently and who do not um, simply swallow the mandates of the pharmaceutical industry. So they are being um, selected um, out of the system. We know that since 2014, Italy, um, since the Renzi government, it's always the so-called Partito Democratico, the so-called Democratic Party, which still is uh, the one that is uh, most prone to regulating and which has been opposing um, all efforts to introduce regulations uh, that are in line with human rights. Now, this party back in 2014 used uh, the Italian population of um, guinea pigs of big pharma. Um, they were sold to the pharmaceutical industry, basically. So that was uh, organized under Renzi between an, uh, between Renzi and the U.S. government under Obama. So we in Italy are particularly affected as long as nothing changes in U.S. policies. As long as the Democrats are in government there, we're particularly exposed to this. So, due to the contracts made in 2014, the population has been abused as guinea pigs. As we are the one EU country where the measures were implemented in a um, way that uh, violated human rights. We have, of course, numerous uh, lawsuits, um, some of which have moved on to um, appellate courts already, because, of course, millions of citizens have been affected by this. these measures. We're not only talking about the health workers. Up until a few days ago, we also had the COVID-19 um, vaccination mandate for uh, the 
over 50-year-olds. So since the 1st of February until uh, the uh, 25th of March, everybody over 50 years, um, all employees uh, over uh, 50 who uh, could not prove that they were vaccinated were excluded, were suspended from work without pay. That affected, of course, many millions. And this has, of course, led to a lot of uproar. The same happened to the members of the uh, security forces, um, uh, police, uh, fire brigade, etc. And it started back in October of last year for them. And it also happened to the teachers. So by now, because very many uh, members of the uh, security forces refused to take the uh, vaccine, even though they uh, were suspended without pay. Um, and although it's, uh, there was a lot of uproar, the situation now is such that the members of the security forces are still formally uh, subject to the so-called vaccination mandate, but they cannot be suspended from work anymore. And that is the result of some um, law uh, judgments, uh, court uh, rulings. There are obviously individual judges who still remember what our uh, constitution looks like. who also look at the facts of the so-called vaccination because we have individual rulings where judges rightly said it is unacceptable that an employee is suspended from work without pay simply because he is opposed to an injection of a substance that only has a um, limited license, a limited approval, that is against human dignity, and it's absolutely unacceptable to do that without pay. And it is particularly members of the military, of um, the police force, who then were granted uh, payments by court ruling. And the same, by the way, happened for teachers. With health workers, there's still a bit of a problem, um, but we have an important uh, case pending in front of the Italian um, Constitutional Court. The appellate uh, courts of administration in Sicily and lo and behold, the sensitivity for violation of human rights seems to be somewhat more intensive uh, in the south of Italy than in the north. So this is becoming a um, um, repetitive pattern. So this appellate uh, court of administrative justice, which is uh, uh, acknowledged uh, to have an excellent president after intensive examination of uh, these um, 
experimental vaccines found that uh, against the background of the fact that there is no active um, uh, uh, pharmacology uh, instance, so the representatives of the uh, Italian health ministry were questioned. They had to answer a questionnaire, and it became quite clear in this context that There is no uh, pharmacology uh, balance. The judges were also um, able to find that the vaccinees aren't uh, sufficiently informed. But above all, the court found that the officially um, recognized um, adverse effects um, found to be in direct um, connection with the vaccinations. The um, um, sorry, the number of deaths that have been uh, caused by the vaccination. The number is only 22. That sounds like a small number, but it's only the tip of the iceberg because we have so many sudden deaths, particularly among young people, so many young people who simply don't wake up in the morning anymore, who just uh, are found in their beds or who simply collapse while engaging in sporting activities. It's so striking that Uh, the judges uh, noticed this as well, and 22 deaths would um, be sufficient based on the principles developed over the decades by the Constitutional Court uh, to determine that this is not a safe medical treatment. And. Um, uh, medical treatment can only be safe according to the Supreme Court in Italy and they can only be forced to this in Italy. There's lots of mandatory vaccinations in Italy already from the past and repetitively there have been cases in front of the constitutional law in Italy and it always the topic that if there is no irreversible damage to be expected then a medical treatment could be made mandatory and in this case now the same courts in uh, appeal say that um, there is already 22 uh, cases with a direct cause of death due to the vaccination so we can say that these injections do not lead to irreverse irreversible damages um, so these damages have been recognized as COVID-19 vaccination deaths and other severe harm 
And in addition, the uh, courts rule that there's no active pharmacovigilance, so we have to assume that there are more cases which simply have not been reported. And in the consequence, uh, there was the question of the constitutionality to be asked, and this happened a fortnight ago, and we now strongly hope that the Italian Constitutional Court will um, rule as they have developed very coherently over the past decades and do not discard these rules for political reasons. We are a bit scared in this case because the uh, president of the Italian Constitutional Court was replaced only a little while ago. He is now a former politician who was a uh, president of the government, Giuliano Amato, and he is uh, very close to the um, central left wing um, section and he is also uh, said to be close to Draghi and of course we have some concerned concern now with respect to that president because he is a former politician and we of course know what dimension this um, purely legally based ruling would have for the uh, health working staff. And if uh, that would be ruled, of course, it would rule out any other COVID-19 mandatory vaccinations in Italy, especially um, only for um, substances with restricted approval, and that would mean that the um, vaccines already bought in great quantities will not be able to be used on the people. And we fear that due to the large amount of interests in this subject matter and our knowledge that Draghi is an absolute executor of these financial interests and he couldn't have said it more clearly in his times of government he is gone so far that although it was quite clear that in an address to the parliament he mentioned, he named all of these who are not vaccinated, vaccinated with that experimental subject, a substance, are uh, murders or suicidals. And so here, we, this is the level we are looking at in the argument. And in that case, it is not very surprising that in Naples, he is um, faced in the way we've seen in the video. He has visited a couple of places and all of the places had similar um, receptions to him as, them, as the one we've seen in the video, calling him a murder and... Uh, we have to state that here in Italy, factually, we 
are we have mandates to vaccinate millions of um, civilians, um, vaccinating them with that experimental subjects, absolutely violating the Nuremberg Codex, and all of this being educated and executed by the puppets of the government. I have um, the looked at the I looked at the agenda of the Senate of the Italian Republic and I gave them a legal statement with respect to these illegal vaccinations and on 32 pages related to the official documents alone of EMA, the European Commission and the producers themselves proving that these substances do not fulfill um, the effect which has been told for the to the people and mainly that they are not sure not safe and with the uh, consequence I that I drew was that here we are now looking at a permit since 27th of December 2020 um, with the EU um, level rollout of the injections that at the time due to the conscious and massive disinformation of the population which was um, defeated and still is um, by the old and regime media, um, this is still carrying on all the time. And even now, if it follows the um, rules of the um, misleading information um, of the media, which leads to a constant violation of the Nuremberg card. Um, the 20, 32 pages which I wrote has been published on the Senate of the European of the Italian um, Republic as a part of that documentation, which has been submitted by experts in the context of the hearings by the Senate. Um, not a single parliamentarian, and by far not the members of the government, every parliamentarian in Italy who voted for the COVID-19 uh, treatments ha can not say that they were not aware of the risks um, of what they are voting for and uh, the cause that they have damaged and the damage that they have caused and will cause um, in the future as well. And um, this mandate for our healthcare staff, um, we now hope that uh, the state will pull the emergency break. We are going to see whether the um, highest court uh, um, in the at least formally still existing legal uh, state of law, which we have if the Italian Court of Constitution uh, will not kick out its principles. Um, if that does happen, we can only hope that the 
uh, majority of the Italians finally wake up and help themselves. We dearly hope for an interference of the highest uh, Italian court, but there are some concerns which are quite high due to the staffing of exactly that course. We, court, we have had some positive rulings so far at lower levels of the uh, course in Italy. Um, there was one important um, state court um, looking at the uh, vaccination of children with COVID-19 vaccines and that ruled quite clearly after a detailed um, review of the case that the legal status that these substances are in due to their uh, restricted approval um, the children um, must be protected against the vaccination if one part of the uh, parents uh, object to the treatment and uh, the uh, judge cannot allow a vaccination if one of the parents of the two um, oppose to that but there is a lot of discussion on this there's lots of court cases on these um, cases unfortunately because Whenever the relationship between the parents does not work anymore, um, the children are the ones who bear the sufferings and who become the playboy um, of the fight between the parents, um, much to the harm of their development and their health. And this is why we have many court cases now um, with parents appealing um, against the other part of the parent um, that um, the children are not to be vaccinated with these experimental substances. And of course, this rules the fate of these children, which is dependent um, on uh, the view of the individual judge um, who uh, may or may not be aware of the range and the severity of the consequence of their ruling. Um, if they do look at the factual um, characteristics and the legal status of these tox uh, of these substances um, and we see that the judges um, are very superficial in their ruling and their examination of the cases and this is why there is little hope that the constitutional court will decide <clears throat> um ruling against this and um, every single person who has some legal common sense should arrive at the conclusion that for a restricted approval uh, a medicine with a restricted approval as a judge if um, <clears throat> a healthy child where we know they have no risk if they get into contact with that virus um, less risk than uh, getting an influenza um, as we have heard a couple of times that the 
uh, these children shouldn't be submitted to that experimental vaccination. So anybody with some basic legal understanding should really understand this. But with great despair, we have to observe and see that especially these basic legal considerations, looking at the basics of uh, our legal systems, where we look at the basic rights of the people, especially the children, there seems to be a great part of the judges who can't simply be bothered to look into the cases. Um, they simply follow the official narrative, um, absolutely not recognizing the facts which have all been documented um, from a large number of lawyers by now who looked into these matters. We have a continuously growing pool of lawyers in Italy who are now taking care on uh, about these such cases and um, with a great uh, um, a great number of lawyers who are doing this and the experiences that we have here are very so so sometimes we are pleased and happy that we get very good rulings and we are happy that apparently there are still some judges who can think for themselves and who know what it means to rule. And on the other hand, there we are um, shocked in seeing the rulings which simply express the execution of the propaganda in a very, very superficial manner. Um, and that really um, makes us shudder in fear. So we dearly hope that the Constitutional Court will hold what it is um, its uh, competence. And that is the situation in Italy as far as the legal aspects are concerned. Of course, we have many court proceedings pending at the moment because we are the prime country in terms of measures here in Europe, and uh, we have been attacked most. Renata, I think the picture is pretty similar across the globe, particularly um, when it comes to the political uh, appointment of uh, judges, including in Germany, um, at least for um, the um, leading positions of uh, judges in uh, regional courts, particularly upper regional courts. And we know that the president of the Supreme Court in Germany is a former politician who always has had the interests of industry uh, on his mind, who certainly uh, doesn't have democracy uh, on his mind because he ensured that the administrative uh, courts that ruled against uh, demonstration bans were considered to be uh, counter-constitutional. Uh, he uh, took a, a ridiculous decision um, uh, regarding the vaccination mandate for health uh, workers 
um, with the argument that people, nobody uh, needs to bow uh, to this vaccination uh, mandate because people can change their job. Now, I wonder what happens if we get a general va uh, vaccination mandate. Now, you have to fear that the person who was uh, appointed president of the Supreme Court in Italy, uh, Giuliano Amato, wasn't, didn't they have um, a political office in the past? Wasn't, wasn't he president at some stage? Precisely. He was the prime minister for um, a year, twice. He had two terms. We've had many, many uh, government crises. And for two, two times after a uh, fall of a government, he has um, been the lead of the government until the elections, elections could be held again. He is someone who is known in the Italian politics to be um, involved in everything. So, someone like him having someone like him at the uh, in the chair of the uh, constitutional court in Italy for this reason alone um, for his past alone which is truly active um, at top level politics uh, that is something for me that is actually a no-go and a president of a court of constitutional court should in their court career have been a judge in an independency um, publicly independent of any political development in all of his career and of course, that is something a politician will, by definition, not have. And uh, so I have to say that we have the last government action now, where officially the so-called um, health emergency of national concern had to be um, cancelled and uh, uh, phased out. So today is day one outside of that emergency situation, but still the COVID-19 measures are still carry on. This is pure madness. Uh, still, we have to, uh, the, uh, we have mandatory vaccinations or uh, recovery and tests to enter into places. It's incredible. We have a complete um, ruling out of the basics, the most basic fundamental laws. And not only that, we had the so-called emergency of health um, illegally, by the way for all that time and there are uh, interesting rulings by court and um, a very well reasoned ruling is was done in Pisa and there are some peace uh, courts who said this and uh, also this applies for other countries possibly here the um, emergency 
ruling is actually only for case of war. And we um, have not um, foreseen this health emergency in our legislation at all. So that means all COVID-19 measures, uh, starting with lockdowns right to the mandatory vaccinations on this basis, were simply illegal um, because they were <clears throat> based on that legal situation which simply does not exist <clears throat> and um, there were some individual judges who um, rule um, against people breaking the lockdown and so and um, rule that out with that reasoning so um, we had measures that based on a non-existent legal basis and now we have measures which, on top of that, um, were applicable until 31st of March, um, and now they are still continued, so there's even less of a legal basis now. And by now, uh, the legislation um, it has all been passed uh, by the Italian Parliament, always um, misusing the vote of consonant because if Draghi had asked the uh, question of competence, it wouldn't work. <clears throat> because everybody's afraid of their jobs. Absolutely, yes. Uh, say, uh, you explained that yourself that you purchased enough uh, vaccines to vaccinate everybody seven times over at least. Uh, the same goes for Germany. We keep finding more and more things that the whole thing is not a pandemic. Well, we know definitely that it's not a true pandemic because we know that the survival rate is 99.97%, that children are statistically unaffected, that there are alternative treatment methods. Nobody. Um, denies that the virus exists and we know above all that the cases were created with a test that wasn't even uh, licensed and is uh, not suitable, um, a test that is not suitable. Uh, all of this is of course enough for anyone except for the uh, Sicilian court in Germany that is completely ignored. Nobody's interested anymore of fundamental rules of um, uh, court proceedings. If um, one says that it's green and the other says it's red, then you look for evidence. Um, if you say um, that the vaccine is no good, the others say it's um, helpful, then um, you find to find evidence. And what Wheeler uh, has been doing here is to bypass courts, and courts don't uh, even ask questions, and that is the task of courts, just as it is the, the job of science uh, to ask questions. If we look at an excess number of vaccinations and that were planned before the pandemic ever started but back in 2020 or even 2019, uh, in Germany, for instance, an, um, compensatory act was modified, and, um, and I'm not really interested in these acts anymore because it's uh, pure arbitrariness, but back in 2019, the um, compensation uh, act 
was modified not only to uh, cover um, acts of war, but also uh, damage caused by uh, pandemics. How could you do that if you didn't know that there was a pandemic coming um, around the corner? Um, all of that doesn't seem to interest the courts anymore. Um, and I don't think that it is uh, unlikely that the Supreme Court under this new president, if other people don't uh, bring um, pressure to bear on him, will drop his mask. But then uh, you might have people um, somewhere else in the judicial system who stood by the sidelines in the past, um, who said, oh, this is kind of weird. So then, then it will be become evident to every, everyone that this is uh, unreasonable. Yes, it is very important now that we bring the facts to the light of the day. And it's very important to um, inspect and examine every case of death um, and very detailed uh, look at every aspect of it like you do in your work uh, very important information is uh, to understand what's going on in um, Italy and <clears throat> in Bologna we have the first city who or that um, will introduce that social credit system. So um, it's called Patente um, Digitale. That means citizens that prove to be especially dear to the state who do not trespass any uh, traffic rules or uh, who can show in any other way that they are any goody two shoes. Um, they can simply uh, that they are very, um, very good and uh, very obedient citizens, they get premiums. So if you can show that you never trespass or you never speed your car or do anything else wrong, um, you pay all your bills, yes, and you always pay your bills um, in due time. That is something which is um, raising some concern as well and which is also very interesting in this context because it comes um, um, from a so-called um, the um, Emilia Boliana, the um, the of uh, the Partic, uh, Partito Democratico and um, they are very, very much up to the vaccinations and they are now um, very much in favor of the uh, delivery of uh, weapons to the Ukraine and who now want to um, cover their people up and uh, suppress them with that uh, social credit system. Those, those premiums. What can these bonuses be used for that you get? <laughs> Vaccinations? <laughs> what if I get these credit points in Bologna? What can I buy for it or what um, benefits do I get if I get these uh, premiums? 
Well, that is yet to be seen. Um, you can get to flats, possibly. People are very dependent um, if they are socially in need, somebody who is quite independent financially, um, if it's not going very, very crass, um, they're not going to be affected so much. But always the people who depend on transfer payments, anything by the state, really. Um, and these system the system is currently uh, being rolled out in Bologna and of course it is being criticized already but the fact alone that the state the city administration says we are developing this we want to come out with this is a massive um, uh, point. Of course, we are of course going to uh, watch this very closely, but of course we have to stop it right from the beginning, because if this starts to roll out, that those uh, who simply um, are very, very obedient and uh, document to do that uh, and to show that they are that they are without any resistance and they can get benefits from some uh, from this this is something that is out of the way <laughs> few people would know better than you that even the so-called vaccination manufacturers vaccine uh, manufacturers say themselves well, immunization, that is really the definition of a vaccine. Well, immunization, i.e. protecting you against the uh, illness, no, that won't happen. But maybe it actually protects you against um, severe cases. Even RKI has uh, recognized that it can't immunize. How can you justify a uh, vaccination mandate? Or is it the case that uh, the population doesn't recognize it, re uh, doesn't know it? Do they believe that it's a vaccine just because it says vaccine? Um, otherwise, it can't be understood uh, that a Mr. Draghi uh, gets up and says um, the unvaccinated are suicidal and they're murderers. Um, how is that possible? Well, you're quite right in what you say, Brenner. Especially in Italy, the media are massively subject to propaganda. And we have the so-called uh, mainstream media, which even less report or no, don't report at all zero on the uh, adverse effects in Germany. Uh, we could recently observe that one or the other report made it out, um, of course, um, with a uh, context that is very, very rare, but it may in exceptional cases happen. Still, it was brought out in the main media, um, the main TV station, um, uh, the both main German media channel started to report this, um, that there is a problem which can't be swept under the rug anymore, apparently. In the Italian media, however, uh, or in the regime media, one may say, this is something one would uh, search very, very long for. Um, 
that means uh, that means the population is uh, characterized by uh, being absolutely brainwashed fully 100 percent and this is why we only have that part of the population who uh, look into new media alternative media who know what is going on uh, information is out on the uh, a local print media on raised mortality figures they come out with this um, that this is understandable if you want to however we still have an awareness which uh, we have a um, prosecutors of law attorneys of law who are very very much against making people aware of this and um, then it is very difficult to find any um, examinations which are objective if somebody dies after a vaccination so the state apertures in, in this case, together with the mainstream media, did a full-fledged work. And we can simply see that a, a, a small part of the population who, although there is uh, no mask mandate anymore outdoors, um, there hasn't been for some weeks, some people keep using the masks outdoors, and then you can understand that a part of the population has been, uh, has drifted away from a re uh, the perception of reality that it's very easy to continue manipulating those. For instance, We've had this obligation uh, to uh, prove that you're vaccinated or recovered uh, for people who visit uh, nursing homes or hospitals, and this is really contrary to fundamental rights. So if you have a, a relative who needs to go to hospital and If you're not uh, treated with these substances or have recovered, then you are not allowed to visit your own relative or take them to hospital, even if that person is uh, severely injured or ill. So these are undignified measures. The same goes for the nursing homes for the elderly if you have a relative there you can't visit them unless you are uh, vaccinated or recovered and we know exactly that if the tests are done um, in a um, appropriate manner and if you believe you uh, you feel you need this uh, safety, then you would have to re uh, require a test rather than insisting on a vaccination, uh, COVID-19 vaccination, uh, even though we know that these people can be actually super spreaders. Renate, if I can pick up on what you just said when I ask, how can it be that a Draghi can stand up and say you are murderers and suicidals in the face of the firm 
confirmation of the um, producers that they do not get any vaccination. So it can't be about protecting others. It can only be about protecting themselves. You said the propaganda is very strong. I think everywhere it is, but maybe it's even stronger in Italy. In the end, that means, and I think that's the most important point, that this means that the other side has managed to create an Ill illusion in which Everything works according to plan. Not everything, or not everyone. We aren't, you aren't, many others aren't. But 80% work according to plan, including the legal system, <clears throat> not asking questions, saying the illusion is what we believe. We assume it's a vaccination because it is called vaccination. And uh, I think that is something we'll have to look into. How can it be that an illusion is so powerful that even if the other says, oh, by the way, um, in another um, side remark, uh, PCR infections can't show, tests can't show an infection, the vaccinations do not lead to immunity, the illusion still carries on. So they just push the cart down the road, and uh, if it goes gets moving, 80% of the people follow it. Um, we can assume that these 80% of the people will not talk and listen to anything else. And why is what we have to look into that's the question yes you're absolutely right it's a mask psychosis <clears throat> and which has caught up a large part of the population <coughs> although more and more people the critical mass has been growing and now recently um, according to this new topic in the media um, and now replacing that uh, COVID narrative, which is the Ukraine, and now that part of the population who was maybe um, not being aware of the lie and the lie about the PCR tests and the COVID-19 vaccinations, they may now become aware and see how the propaganda is working with respect to that new topic now and um, that is very gross in italy as well for example we've had cases of former uh, people who were positive <clears throat> who um, recognize the pattern they're saying we're in the same film. It's a re repeat uh, from the start of the so-called pandemic. The experts, which until then had been uh, very renowned professors, now just because they are critical in the media on the handling of the Ukraine crisis, they, especially with respect uh, to criticism showing that it does not make any sense um, to um, give arms to the civil population there, because that's going to become a big problem. Uh, these experts were simply removed from public 
discussion and officially declared by the regime media as persona non grata. And I've said this in the beginning, more than half of the population in Italy sees these deliveries of weapons to Ukraine as not okay. And uh, they have understood that it is not comprehensible and not in the interest of it can't be in the interest of the ukraine civil population and um, now wondering how the arguments of the experts which were as i said very well renowned in the past uh, coming up with very logic arguments experts in anti-terrorism and so on how they have been officially lynched in their reputation and this is something that has made the one one or the other person to think well renate i think we can see a repeat of the same story as we did in corona if you're not online you're fr framed as right right nazi nazi wing so possibly the people may recognize the pattern and see that there is a correlation we know and it's publicly readable that corona and ukraine have some points of connection that one is the parallel or the continuation of the other which is the great reset so the other said we need chaos maybe corona will not work forever we're going to try to carry on with it on with it forever but um, we'll just to make sure to get on we'll switch over to ukraine we know that is part of the great reset because they need panic to um develop there and deliver their uh, universal goals which is a global government and a global uh, digital currency that can only be done if the uh, population is deceived and made look in the other way maybe people can note this and we can hope that people wake up in the light of the Ukraine. The experts of yesterday are the Nazis of today. People may start looking into the details of Corona. That is at least what I would hope for. Well, um, which ties into this, this um, vaccination damages uh, the, the problems with that. How variant is it in Italy? Um, how many people realize that they have this? Many people probably deny to themselves um, that there could be a connection between any um, symptoms they develop and the, the vaccination. Uh, this should be a sort of a catalyst. What do you think about it? Yes, it definitely has a catalytic effect. Um, this is why we have increasing numbers of lawyers who uh, become active in this uh, context because they see themselves and their own families as potentially affected people because they were also subject to the vaccination mandate. So networks are uh, building and expanding where uh, information is collated and um, um, things are being um, analyzed. There's a big problem, of course, in that the psychology of those people, particularly parents of uh, children and young people who deliberately subjected their children to this treatment and then to 
accept um, um, that you made a mistake is nearly impossible. Then you have to admit to yourself, I nearly killed my child. And um, of course, it's also a problematic that in the first days after uh, somebody's death, the relatives are shocked, of course, and the competent institutions who uh, due to the uh, requirement of the pharma uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, legislation are obliged to um, perform autopsies um, if there is a likelihood of a um, relationship between a connection between the vaccination and the death. Um, this is avoided. And um, the relatives are, of course, uh, grieving, and then they're uh, overtaxed. They only start thinking uh, later on, unless they're lucky enough that there's someone among their friends who still have a chance to step back a bit and who says, hold, uh, hold your horses there. This has to be clarified. We need an autopsy here. And then, in those cases, post-mortems are requested, but usually relatives are so overwhelmed by their grief, and instead of disencumbering them uh, from this administrative burden, officially uh, triggering these post-mortems, which would be the obligation of the authorities, actually, Even uh, based on the uh, licensing uh, requirements um, um, imposed by the EU, which says that a particularly strong pharmacovigilance is required here, but uh, particularly strong pharmacovigilance is only possible if a person If there is a clear um, connection between the vaccination and the death, then the, an, a postmortem has to be uh, ordered. And the exact opposite happens here. So people have to submit uh, requests, and they often have to be justified by a lawyer. Well, I mean, they obviously do not want the real uh, data to come to light. But, as I said, we are now uh, interested to see the um, mortality um, statistics. And if we can show for the recent months that among younger generations there is a um, significant excess mortality compared to prior years, then this speaks for itself. We already had um, indications, first indications in the previous months, but even um, uh, the gut feeling you get concerning uh, the information popping up um, in the context of individual cases, we believe that this um, 
will um, prove to be statistically obvious. It surely will, and uh, especially as you see in Italy as well, the veil will be pulled aside and it'll become more and more clear that the enemy that we are facing here has no other chance than either to uh, be defeated or take the mask off their faces fully. In both cases, in the end, we're going to win. I thought it would have gone much faster in the beginning of the story. We all had a different idea of what was going on also with the legal system, and uh, nobody expected that corruption would be so deep as it is. Renata, I thank you very much for your explanations and information from Italy. We um, got a bit uh, behind to start with our session because we had a technical problem Problem, but we'll have to uh, turn to Professor Dr. Berkholz now, who has been waiting for a while as well. I thank you very much for taking part in our show. I uh, think it's going to be it's very helpful, and we're going to see. Um, we see it's a bit more difficult maybe in Italy as it was um, expected, but we see they are demasked, and we can see what's behind it more and more clearly. Well, that is true. That is true. We simply have to hope that the majority of uh, people will realize this. If we achieve that, then the show is over. Unfortunately, the courts of law will only function according to the perception and the mood in the population. That's the way it is. It's disaster. Okay, bye-bye. Professor Dr. Werner Berkholz is our next guest, and he ha is a professor for electrical engineering with a focus on quality and risk management, and an interdisciplinary nonpartisan group of scientists. Professor Werkholz has, together with Professor Hockerts, and I'm just getting an information here, with Professor Schubert and Professor Stilzner have assessed the most important medical scientific arguments against the threatened vaccination obligation. And this group demands an immediate vaccination stop and naturally the announcement of any vaccination obligation. Thank you, Werner, for keeping you waiting so long due to the technical problems. We have come under pressure now. Um, our American guests are in the lineup already, but um, we'll manage as always. Um, what did you find out, Werner? Well, no problem. Uh, it was interesting to listen to this, um, to uh, Renate Holzeisen. Well, we've collected facts and discussed them, and we tried to summarize them uh, in the most simple and brief terms possible. I will not uh, show this paper now, and I won't show a presentation like I usually do, but the facts are so simple, really, that they don't require any uh, illustration anymore. By way of introduction, um, this was um, a group of scientists, correct, and politicians have uh, repeatedly 
accused those who are critical of the uh, COVID measures to ignore scientific facts or even to deny them. What I am going to say, and I f um, uh, fully stand over this, I can uh, fully prove this scientifically. So if our friends, the fact checkers, have any uh, doubts here, feel free to um, try to disprove it. Four points. First of all, question one, is it necessary? We'll show that it isn't. Secondly, is it suitable? We'll show that it isn't. Um, uh, and it, uh, in, this includes the uh, over 50-year-olds, which is being discussed now. And that would include myself. Um, um, damages, yes, it is. Um, the vaccine is harmful. And yes, there are alternatives to minimize the risk for vulnerable persons. But this does not include this jab. So let's start with the question of, is it necessary? Uh, and I'll uh, refer to RKI uh, figures with all of the provisos that um, uh, the so-called incidence uh, figures um, uh, include. I think we're in the fifth wave of officially. We started with 4% uh, of mortality. That was in March 2020. And of course, that was incorrect because the uh, number of uh, the cases that were not uh, um, captured, the tests were only random tests. And Professor Ioannidis uh, repeatedly showed what, that it was actually only 0.2%. But let me get back to what I want to demonstrate here. The case mortality decreased with every wave. We started at 4%. We're now at below 0.1%. That's a factor of 40. Just imagine. And it's undisputed. Even the politicians admit this, that this Omicron variant is relatively harmless. I would say anyone who's only reasonably healthy will have no problem. It will give you a cold, maybe a little of uh, increased um, temperature. And if you get it, you will probably um, try to um, stay at home and, and, and recover. A light, a slight uh, flu, that's all. Now I um, went to the trouble of uh, calculating how many positive tests have we had in this spring alone. That's not part of the uh, the paper now. It took me to 16 million. That's all based on the RKI figures. We know, on the other hand, from blood examinations and the cases of the uh, aircraft carriers and the cruise ship, only about 20% uh, of people have no cross immunity. So only 20% of people are susceptible to infection with a coronavirus. 
And if you do the figures, 20% of 83 million inhabitants, 16.6 million people who are affected by this. So we uh, should be way beyond the point of herd immunity. We can speculate, of course, no. Of course, we have a significant false positive rate. Secondly, all sorts of things are shown. And this is not uh, denied really by anyone. Uh, how does Wolfgang uh, Wodak say it? If it itches, it could be lice or fleas. Uh, so you would have to uh, think of flu or other um, um, respiratory diseases. Right, so that's what we are now. So according to all um, the rules um, that applied, at least in the medical profession for the last 100 years, we're through with it. Iceland, for instance, has said, forget about the vaccination. And that's where um, I'm going now. That's the second question. Is such a vaccination mandate suitable at all? Now, the question is, what is it supposed to achieve? Well, the argument runs that, all right, in the summer, it'll be relatively harmless, but in the fall, the big figures will come back. Uh, presented surprising figures to the federal parliament in Germany, namely that the accounting figures of... So I figured, okay, why don't I look at the figures published by Pfizer in the context of the um, approval study. We're talking of 20,000 uh, study participants there, and we can assume that the participants are no more or less uh, susceptible to vaccination damage than the rest of the population. And uh, the, uh, this is what Polyethic Institute refers to. So, just as I said, 0.61%, uh, and that was found in the research, 50%. 50% of the test persons had some adverse effects, many more than one. <clears throat> Severe diseases, 0.02%. In the official data of Pfizer, we're talking about a single digit percent, two to five percent. So depends on what you if you add them. So if you'd add them all, I think you get even to a two digit range. So that's 0.02 percent compared to two percent. So I think that only leads us to conclude that we have a um, very severe. Uh, care uh, level of underreporting by factor 100 here. So that means instead of 2,000 um, people who died, we have 200,000 dead. Well, we can't talk about the deaths based on this argumentation as yet, because during the evaluation phase, nobody died. By now, by now, and I nearly forgot to say this, this is. I have to add that the largest part of the placebo group in the study was vaccinated as well, and that's a while ago now as well. And in both groups, I'm not sure what the situation was. Surely not quite up to date. It was five people who've died. So there has been deaths so far, but 
it seems to be a while um, until people th uh, die, thankfully. But the severely harmed people are astronomic figures, really. If we take even the Paul Ehrlich Institute uh, figure 0.2 on 1,000 vaccinations, severe adverse effects, we've had 140 million dosages vaccinated. 1% of that would be 1.4 million. 0.01% would be 14,000. 0.2,000 would be 28, nearly 30,000 severe cases of adverse effects. Yes, but wait a minute. These 140 million have been distributed to 60 million people, roughly. Well, most of them have got, most people have got three. So that should be broken down. So um, <clears throat> the question is then, is that cumulative? Does, is it that one person who's got the booster already? Um, isn't that a mistake in the calculation? Well, not really. This is only a rough estimate. So there are cases, many cases, where the first uh, shot was harmless and the second really does the damage and um, the adverse effects or inverse effects probably happen um, i know a 15 year old girl who died after the first and uh, who didn't have anything after the first shot and uh, severe effects uh, leading to death after the second so this figure of 30,000 is surely quite too low as yet because we have just seen there is substantial underreporting, and we have to assume hundreds of thousands of severely damaged and hurt people. There is a study of the bases in Amazland um, where I heard in the village um, the people who suffer from these adverse effects of the vaccination are starting to organize themselves. And I assume this is happening in more places in the country. So our politicians will and the responsible people will probably face some trouble here in the future. And uh, Paul Ehrlich Institute, first of all, um, being responsible and not doing their own research is quite incomprehensible for me. And the last point I wanted to make is, are there alternatives? Of course there are. And the vulnerable sections of the populations, the over 70-year-olds, which I'm included in, there is this famous case from a care home in Switzerland, which is called the Wanderer of Elk. Uh, a place called near Zurich, um, many of them, uh, oh, many over 100 um, people who live there, infected with the original variant, which was much more dramatic, and not a single person died. And the care home uh, administration says it's no wonder. We made sure very early on that everybody has a sufficient vitamin D level. 
And um, there's at least one scientific study um, which has been subject to a peer review showing if the vitamin D level is too low, um, the probability of a severe or deathly course of the disease is much more likely than if the vitamin D level is high. And in a small um, a survey of that case showed there were similar experiences in France and in Spain. We may remember that, especially um, at least in last winter, the effectiveness of in intensive care, who were who were the people in intensive care, over proportionally many people who um, came from a country in the south, and these people, due to their darkest skin color and probably their genetic um, predisposition do not have uh, such a high efficiency in uh, developing vitamin D. There are some poor bad tongues who say that they, these people do not adhere to any rules. I'm sure this is not true. Uh, that is a very vicious saying. Um, that it was uh, it's undisputed that they have been affected most or strongly and then there are many statements um, ivermectin one of the possible means which has been um, listed as one of the most important uh, drugs for humankind because it has little uh, uh, side effects. There's 45 studies, um, all of which, except from two, show that it is effective. And there was one now where the um, um, non-effectivity is uh, trying to be shown. And I just looked at that. And uh, from my point of view, that was a very poorly designed study, which has no uh, power of word and there is the experience from the US if you use hydrochloroquine in right dosage in the uh, the uh, the first doses um, that was here that discussed uh, probably kill horses, but if you use it properly in combination with uh, zinc, I remember what Vladimir Zelenko said that in a thousand um, severe cases, he only had six who died. And, and then there is uh, Artemisia. Um, there's no study I'm aware of with respect to that. And of course, Moving body, moving your body, sports, everything that is fun. Um, as Christian Schubert tells us, fear and other things um, do take a negative effect on the body and especially the immune system. So if I can summarize what I've just said, there are also uh, there is good means to um, prevention even for the vulnerable uh, people um, of that by now harmless infection not having a real problem not causing a real problem and um, uh, mandatory vaccination is absolutely unsuitable and that is generally um, undisputed to um, stop spreading the disease and it's also not necessary for the reason said and it is severely damaging and as Renata Holzeisen has told us the reporting to the Paul Ehrlich Institute and uh, the various database is only the peak of the iceberg and maybe a last word 
And for me, that's the most uh, concerning aspect. There is data from England, Canada, New Zealand, and another country which I can't recall right now, that clearly show twice and three times vaccinated people infect um, two to three times as much as people who have not been vaccinated. So that is significant and tough, strong data. It's official data, by the way, that shows that the immune system um, that indicate that the immune system doesn't work as good as it should if the people are vaccinated. Uh, it could even be the case that people who uh, had a cross immunity before now, by this treatment, have lost that immunity. And another thing which is concerning as well is that due to the latest finding from the first database, showing one, most people <clears throat> who die or have strong adverse effects, it happens in the first one, two weeks, preferably in the first week. And then there is two, three months of calm waters and then it comes back. And this seems to be accumulating now, and that is consistent with what Anna Burkhardt has uh, and Werner Lang have shown. They have looked at people or samples of people who did not die acutely in the hospital, but who just uh, dropped dead in everyday life. And uh, in uh, uh, considerable percentage of the cases, the vaccination was long ago, and there was a, a causality shown with the vaccination, and that is what we see statistically in the first database, and I fear this is going to worsen. I've look at, looked at the data, and um, unfortunately, um, the uh, other databases do not show a differentiation between vaccinated and non-vaccinated, but there's a differentiation of older and younger, and there's a clear trend which is very concerning. Okay, that leads me to the end. Okay, and can we split this up in age groups, what we see here? Yes, I did do so. Uh, the young people we see not so much statistically as yet, but from the June, July onward, and the dependency is quite different. And here we're talking about figures, um, how many people have died per month per 100,000 people. Here we're talking about single-digit figures. That carries on until the age of 30, 35. And then it starts to <clears throat> increase from summer on the early, the elderly the the older the earlier we see a significant upward trend i would have to look at the figures in more detail just to give you an example 80% 80 year old 80 to 85 year olds we're talking people 
these are people who die anyway, unfortunately, more frequently. Per 100,000 per month, we are looking at not 400, um, about 500, 550 now, which is an increase, quite a percentage. And one thing which I didn't do as yet, and this is why I don't want to show these figures, by now we have not looked at how many in these age groups die with or um, of corona. Uh, but in general, we can state this can't be the majority. So the real um, case here is that we see repeating what is clearly stated in the first database, which uh, notes whether people were vaccinated and when, and it looks quite bleak, I have to say. Does that mean that uh, we have indications uh, that the long, medium and long-term effect are emerging more and more clearly now? Does that mean that in the end, as the cause of death, if you don't go into much detail as Professor Booker did uh, doing the histology, that the cause of death at first glance is not brought into connection with the vaccination, but if you look at it in great detail and do what Professor Booker did, uh, you suddenly find out that 80% of the cases, there's a large probability that this has to do with the vaccination. And the last question concerning this, is it right to say that possibly we have what other people, George Callender mentioned this, Ulrika Kimmerer as well, which they said as vaccine-induced autoimmune deficiency syndrome. So that the immune system, I think you mentioned this earlier as well, the immune system by each shot is affected um, until it's completely turned off. Completely turned off and how strongly dampened is something that we can um, frankly only uh, assume about. but. It does seem to be indicated here. The question is, why do people die um, in higher numbers shortly after the vaccination? My personal view is, my personal view is that we are not talking uh, in one in fifty, but one in uh, one in fifty thousand, but one in thousand. There's some indication for that, but that is not scientifically reviewed yet. But it's more than one in fifty thousand for sure. So if we take that figure seriously, Werner, one of a thousand has to expect to die. Yes, that's, 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 if I had to bet, I would do so. That this is 500 to 2000, I would assume the range. So every time I get my shot, I have the risk again that I could be one of them. Yes, that's right. And possibly it's even accumulating in potential yeah and coming back yeah, yes but that is what it looks like um that this is a vaccine induced immune deficiency syndrome like aids by the way um we have to see how it develops i do fear that this is to hold true and it's not going to get better it's rather going to get worse and there are some statements i unfortunately do, do not have any data on this yet that in israel the undertakers 
are overwhelmed with work. They are a few months ahead down the line. Um, I don't want to speculate now, but just to come back to the original um, what is in the uh, federal parliament now, vaccination for plus 50 years old. For me, there is a lot of indication that if I take the opportunity and uh, as an elderly person, which I'm part of, I do vitamin D prophylaxis, I get my physical movement, and um, I don't get fear. I have nothing to be scared about. Uh, so one thing I can say for sure now, the risk of adiposity, uh, alcohol misuse, little movement, poor diet, or all of them together, are much higher than anything else which is in any kind of risk resulting from that COVID-19 vaccination. So, if, uh, the, the disease, you mean, yes, disease or cause of death. So, the vaccination, as we've just found out, is a risk, yes. So, yeah, sorry, I, I just... Um, 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 misspoke. The, the infection is not as risky as it is said to be. The vaccination is probably or surely much more risky. That is, that's for sure. The Paul Ehrlich Institute data show this and there is a significant the significant data saying at least factor 10, even maybe factor 100, um, if I compare that to other research. And another aspect, and I'll, let me assume that the new argument is going to be, or will have to be, that now I, we want to do this for the over 50 years old because they will um, overload our hospitals and uh, that will lead to a breakdown of the health system. Tom Lausen has clearly shown that these figures do not hold true. He's shown that in 2020 and 21, there was less people in hospitals than in the years before. So um, neither in the ICU uh, intensive care units nor in normal wards there has been an overload by no way and there is no scientific evidence that this is going to change in next autumn so for me um any parliamentarian any mp who votes in favor of that mandatory vaccination um really uh, votes against better knowledge everybody's got the knowledge the knowledge is there and all the mps are obliged to get this information and look into what they vote for and i think every one of us should um all of them have been addressed personally they have received tons of letters and emails indicating this to them i have a question you said that the uh, two to three times um, increased number of infections among uh, the vaccinated uh, do they have uh, uh, slighter um, uh, cases or um, do, are they responding to uh, the spikes or is there any knowledge there well, there is data from the UK that hospitalization uh, recently is um, increased, but it's not a crass difference. 
it probably has to do with the fact that the test responds to all sorts of things and the antigen rapid tests are even much less uh, reliable and have even more uh, false positives, which are uh, obviously uh, included in the count by Robert Koch Institute. At least I've heard that this is the case, and with the deceased, it is uh, clearly so that the vaccinated and those who um, have been vaccinated twice or three times over are uh, disproportionately affected, Swedes, um, um, Denmark, Canada. And at least at the beginning uh, with hospitalization, uh, based on the latest RKA, um, weekly report, we have uh, break-even. Um, there was always an advantage for the um, vaccinated, even though we have to say the statements made in the RKA weekly report uh, were always based on about 30% of the um, total cohort, um, which is completely impossible to understand and which I've already um, complained about in a contribution to a newspaper. In other words, I think this is really yes, unacceptable. There's nothing that speaks in favor of a vaccination mandate. There are, uh, however, a lot of things that speak against it. It won't be uh, any good. It will definitely damage uh, the people affected. And if we want to be uh, very outspoken, it is um, uh, state murder. I think this is... Um Spreading. We had um, a colleague here from uh, Critical Prosecutors um, saying that these facts, if we take these facts and take them in consideration, and as an MP, this is necessary if it's such a badly affecting the basic laws um, with that vaccination to be voted on. If we consider these facts, I get to the same result. This is um, state murder. Let me note uh, that we must not only have no vaccination mandate, but this product must be taken off the market. Just imagine that um, the pharmaceutical companies or the, the doctors could use um, other medication that is uh, um, damaging, uh, such as thalidomide. Um, irrespective of the, the um, uh, co um, consequences. So the vaccination mandate would be akin to uh, making uh, thalidomide uh, mandatory uh, during a pregnancy. Um, and that is, of course, com completely incompatible with human rights. Yeah, that's completely analogous. Um, let's assume 10 to 12 million people who are not vaccinated maybe half of them over 50 with 5 million um, uh, vaccinated against their will many of course are not going to do it still at least then according to Paul Ehrlich Institute figures we per 50,000 we would have one case of death so that will be a hundred if we look at the dark figure I think we'll be somewhere between thousand and ten thousand <clears throat> of people murdered, simply that. Yes, we have to be that 
it's yeah. outspoken, that's straightforward. Even 10 would be too, mu too many. Okay, yeah, 10 are too many. Well, thank you very much, Werner, um, particularly for being so brief. That is really something that is that was uh, easy to understand for everyone, you said. Yes, let's see how things develop. I am still hopeful that on 17th of April, this uh, voting will be against that uh, mandatory vaccination. Thank you, Werner. Okay, have a nice weekend. Okay, jetzt schalten wir auf Englisch um. Unser nächster Aktivist und Mediationslehrer. Er ist ein Mitglied der Steering Committee und Co-Chair der Law und Aktivism Committee der World Council for Health. Und er wird, das ist auch zu tun mit Corona, er wird über den WHO-Pandemie-Treaty-Approach und warum es die Gesundheit und die Demokratie erodiert. I hope you can hear us. Shabnam, I'm I'm not sure if I pronounced your name correctly. Shabnam Palisa Mohammed. Are you with us? It's perfect. Hello, Rainer. Hello. Hi, Vivian. Did Hello, I pronounce Vivian. your name correctly? Very well, actually. Thank I'll, you. I'll still I, I'll stick with Shabnam. Is that okay? That's fine. That's perfect. Okay. Um, I, I didn't realize you were a she, but this is even nicer now. <laughs> let, let us know. Um, we've heard so much about this, um, about the WHO with their pandemic treaty approach um, eroding democracy everywhere, because this is nothing, it has nothing to do with democracy. This is, there's no democratic legitimacy behind these uh, invented, really, international, what is it called, international health regulations, something like that. So, so thank you for the opportunity, um, first of all, and to my colleague Maria at the World Council for Health, of course, as you've mentioned uh, there in my introduction, I am on the steering committee of the World Council for Health, as well as co-chair. What I want to share, firstly, is context on the World Council for Health, which is a coalition of health advocacy organizations from Australia to Zimbabwe. Towards the latter part of last year, we caught wind of attempts by the WHO to essentially enforce a lifelong or permanent power grab using the instrument of a proposed pandemic treaty, which is based, as they say, on preparedness and response to pandemics that may arise in the future. So, of course, there are several issues with those colleagues, including the fact that the WHO has been known to change the definition of what is a pandemic in the first place. And this organization has long been embroiled in issues of corruption and conflicts of interest, even prior to the COVID-19 chapter that we find ourselves in. This is historical from the scandal over the H1N1 debacle, as you're very aware of, uh, together with issues with its current and former leadership and conflicts of interest with who sits on its advisory committees and decision-making authorities while holding patents in, for example, the vaccine industry. So this is the same organization that is now trying to enforce a pandemic treaty while the world's attention is diverted by the latest crisis. <laughs> and so what we've done as the World Council for Health is issued an open letter to the people of the world, firstly, Secondly, to the United Nations, 
uh, which is the parent body of the WHO, and thirdly to the WHO. And you can find this letter, uh, colleagues and your audience, on the worldcouncilforhealth.org website. Look for the open letter to the WHO. Mm -hmm. You'll also find URLs linking you to very important information, such as what the WHO itself says about this pandemic treaty. On their website, on the 1st of December, they say in a consensus decision aimed at protecting the world from future infectious diseases, crises, the World Health Assembly today agreed to kickstart a global process to draft and negotiate a convention, agreement, or other international instrument under the constitution of the World Health Organization. Why? To strengthen pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. Of course, they go into their justifiable approach to health and to personal decision-making, which is, of course, something we completely op oppose as free-thinking and sovereign people of the world. This is uh, the, the second time ever that the Health Assembly met in a special session to make this decision. The first time was, of course, uh, regarding the uh, tobacco control um, uh, decision that was made um, uh, in uh, using Article 19 of the WHO Constitution. At that point, let me pause to say relevant to this conversation are Articles 2, 19, 20, 21, and 22. 2, 19, 20, 21, and 22 of the WHO Constitution, which we are, of course, preparing education materials around and sending to the public so they understand how this organization works. What else does their press release on the website tell us? The international uh, intergovernmental negotiating body that they formed held its first meeting on the 1st of March, 2022, They'll be holding their second on the 1st of August, their second meeting. And they also say that they intend on holding public hearings in the run-up to a progress report to the 76th World Health Assembly in 2023. And they intend to submit the outcome for consideration by the 77th World Health Assembly in 2024. Now, this seems like it is a long way away. But as we know, they could declare another pandemic, mm -hmm. infectious disease or other similar crisis and accelerate the process mm -hmm. and implement this proposed pandemic treaty as early as this year. Last night, we found out very important information that I want to give urgent attention to, but we'll come to that in a second or in a minute. The last part of the release on their website very significantly says, that the World Health Assembly requested the WHO Director General to convene meetings and support its work, including the facilitation of participation of other United Nations system bodies, non-state actors, and other relevant stakeholders in the process to the extent decided by the intergovernmental negotiating body. Nowhere there does it say that there's going to be a public participation process with the people. As we know, that is not how these institutions, which are essentially PR agencies for the pharmaceutical and banking industry, and of course, big media and big tech operate. So we're not expecting there to be any form of public participation wherein the views of the sovereign people of our world uh, are important, listened to, and indeed respected. Some of the other issues aligned with this proposed pandemic treaty, colleagues, is not only would it give the WHO inordinate power to declare a pandemic, 
tell your country to enforce a lockdown, but also command what treatments should be observed and, and enforced upon your people. We also know what they're planning to do is increase levels of censorship and a pushback against what they call disinformation and what we call freedom of speech. This pandemic treaty would also accelerate and cement biosurveillance, which we know has always been the goal, uh, and control through these vaccine IDs and digital passports, which would control our access to basic human rights and services, such as when you're allowed to buy food, uh, whether your child can access education, which hospitals or medical treatments you can access, if at all. We know they want to make medical treatment essentially an arm of artificial intelligence and call centers. Um, and of course, then there's the costs of the treaty. What would it cost our countries from our national health budgets and otherwise to help them enforce this treaty from negotiation to completion? Millions, if not billions, that should rather go into fixing broken healthcare systems around the world. And so these are some of the issues with this pandemic, proposed pandemic treaty that they seek to enforce on the people of the world. So as the World Council for Health, our position is that this agreement is unnecessary. It is a threat to sovereignty and inalienable rights, and it increases the WHO's suffocating power to do all of the things that we've discussed just prior to this. Our open letter also talks about public participation, and we say that without a unbiased democratic process, any agreement by the WHO acting via the United Nations is unlawful, illegitimate, unconstitutional, and invalid. We cannot allow the WHO to control the World Health Agenda because it is constantly caught in conflicts of interest related to funding. Of course, we know the Gates Foundation and the Gates-funded Gavi Alliance contribute over one billion a year. That is not a donation, it is an investment in their own vested interest. And so our call to action to our partners and the public is to remember your right to make sovereign decisions about your own health and to protect your country's natural law and constitution. So we urge everyone to approach government representatives, political parties, trade unions, civil society groups, professionals, public figures, and independent media to do three things. One, raise awareness about the implications of this proposed global pandemic agreement, because certainly the other side and establishment media is not going to tell us what the implications are. Two, call for national campaigns that protect natural law and democratic constitutions and three, to join credible civil society coalitions, such as the World Council for Health. We also encourage people to learn more about principles, accords, and laws that do protect our rights as living men, women, and children. This, of course, includes the Syracuse principles, uh, which is enshrined in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, and of course, leading up to 2024, it is incumbent upon people of the world to campaign and to raise awareness about the implications of this treaty. But what we've also decided, colleagues, since this open letter is two very important decisions. One was made during a meeting of the African Coalition to Stop the Treaty, which comprises of South Africa, Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Kenya. 
And indeed, we are encouraging coalitions amongst the different other continents as well. A lot of power in approaching it in that way. What we decided is even if the other side said, okay, we agree there needs to be a public participation process, we apologize for our oversight, we're going to set up public participation processes, meetings, and that will legitimize the process. We reject that in its entirety. Why? We want nothing to do with this treaty. Two, we want nothing to do with the WHO and the United Nations. And three, because any public participation process is easy to manufacture consent. All they would need to do is put their puppets into the process yeah. to essentially just agree and go along with the plan. And so public participation is not something that we're demanding. Secondly, in our meetings with the Law and Activism Committee, we've come to a conclusion that instead of trying to disband the WHO, which is an important call, and to expend all of our energies in fighting them, what we need to do instead is to withdraw from the Absolutely. WHO and from the United Nations. It may sound like something that is massive and unachievable, but it actually isn't. Just one example of that is the New Zealand traditional leaders who have written to the United Nations and to the World Health Organization and said, not only do we oppose your treaty, your proposed pandemic treaty, but we do not recognize your authority over the people of our country. You may have an agreement with the corporate state of New Zealand. You have no agreement with the people of New Zealand. And I would be very happy to forward that letter to both yourself, Raina, and to Vivian to have a Absolutely. look at. Absolutely, yes. One, one thing, Shabnam, I missed one point when you said, um, the first point was raise awareness about what is going on. The third point was join yes. civil society coalitions. What was the second one? So the second call to action is to call for national campaigns that protect natural law okay. and democratic constitution. Excellent. This is right up my alley. I mean, you're kicking in open doors because this is what we've been uh, talking about for months now. And we, just like you, we don't want to fight these people. They're not worth it. Just disconnect. Just disconnect. Tell them you may. Perfect. I mean, tell them you may have power over our corporate, uh, corporate government, but you don't have power over us. We can do our own thing. Perfect. I love that. <laughs> That is exactly it. That is exactly. It. You know, we spend so much of time and resources and, and, and energy fighting them instead of building the better way, which is what the World Council for Health is all about. That that's our that's our slogan. There is a better way, and we are building and co-creating it together. Uh, and so it's very, very exciting to think in that kind of direction. And certainly the world is shifting in terms of our thinking as well. Yes. In any case, who funds the World Health Organization and the United Nations? It's us. Yeah. Essentially, they're using our resources to violate our rights. So certainly they need to also be a focus on what democracy looks like in our countries. Do we have democracy? What we have is representatives who purport to represent us, but in most instances, they actually don't. No. Just one example of that is how many of them have raised attention in our countries to this proposed pandemic treaty and asked us, what do you think? before they decide to allocate massive amounts of our budget to the WHO and the United Nations. And of course, we must not forget the role of the World Economic Forum, 
which is essentially the linchpin behind everything that's happening. I also want to share with you colleagues a very important development that came to our attention last night at a meeting of the Law and Activism Committee. We had a speaker, James Rogaski, who joined us as a guest. And you have to read an article on his substack. It's James and his surname is R-O-G-U-S-K-I. And here's the key takeaways. The United States has proposed amendments to the international health regulations, which will be voted on by the World Health Assembly scheduled, not for 2024, but for 22nd to 28th May, 2022. That's now, that is on our doorstep. So this, he has a series of four articles, or four articles in the series, and I'm going to just highlight the salient points from the fourth article, which is called Wake Up and Smell the Burning of Our Constitution. What are the key takeaways? One, the international health regulations are legally binding and supersede the United States Constitution. All the nations of the world have already agreed to the existing international health regulation. Let me pause there for a second to mention the following. That proposed pandemic treaty, if signed by a two-thirds majority, if later on one of our representatives has a crisis of conscience and realizes we don't want to be a part of this treaty anymore, sanctions can be imposed against that country. Yeah. So massive geopolitical and socioeconomic considerations to take into regard. What are the other key takeaways from this urgent development for May 2022? The US has proposed amendments to the legally binding international health regulations that will be voted on at the next World Health Assembly this May 2022. These proposed amendments will cede additional sovereignty, control, and legal authority. Sovereignty, control, and legal authority over to the World Health Organization. The amendments proposed by the US would also give the Director General of the WHO, who is of course not a doctor and not supported in his homeland of Ethiopia, the legal authority to unilaterally issue an intermediate public health alert, IPHA. The criteria for the issuance of an IPHA, Intermediate Public Health Alert, is simply that the Director General has determined it requires heightened international awareness and a potential international public health response. The amendments will also give regional directors within the WHO, because that's how they structure operate, they have regional directors, the legal authority to declare a P-H-E-R-C, public health emergency of regional concern. What does this mean? The United States wants to hand over, and these are the words of James on his substack, our sovereignty to regional directors at the WHO and give them the power to declare public health emergencies of regional concern. And then, of course, if you look at the rest of the article, it will show you exactly how they intend to amend the international health regulations, what's been deleted, what's been added in. For example, now all the decision-making capacity sits not with the 
member states, which in itself is problematic because there is no public participation, but gives sole power to the director general. Essentially, we're dealing with a dictatorship. Absolutely. And that's exactly what it is. And it's utilizing the so-called COVID-19 crisis as a mechanism to which to which to achieve everything they've always wanted. So we've got to keep our eyes on two developments. This one regarding the United Nations amendments to the IHR, which will be tabled at the World Health Assembly in May, together with the proposed pandemic treaty, because of course they're operating in lockstep. And of course, they're changing the way uh, that the time periods as well. They're accelerating how long these amendments need to be in circulation for comment, etc. So there isn't even enough time to discuss, to debate, to ventilate, to agree, to disagree. And of course, that too is deliberate while they keep us distracted with the latest crisis or the latest celebrity. And so... This is not only a, this, this latest development is not only applicable to the United States. It would become in Kabul that constitute these these bodies called the UN and the WHO. Mm -hmm. So it's in fact all of us that need to give it focused attention. But certainly, a high level of mobilization is required in the United States. And within this article, you will find links to who are the contact people that are representatives to the WHO and by extension, the United Nations, that we need to contact and demand that they withdraw from the process. But remember, we're withdrawing from the system. That's the only way to do it, I think. Um, we have long since advocated for that. It's no use fighting that. So if totally you have any, any questions, you're uh, welcome to raise, uh, yeah. raise them. Yes. So you're saying basically we have to advocate for the first of all for people to become aware of this and secondly uh, to allow them to understand that the only way out of this chokehold is by withdrawing from the system entirely setting up our own system. Absolutely. That's the only way for us to function and to survive as the 99%. Yeah. It's to assert our sovereignty, it's to withdraw from their systems. You know, we've been caught up many years in this belief that the United Nations and the WHO represent us. They no. actually never have and they never will. Yeah. That's not to say they aren't good people working on the inside. They are. And we welcome them coming over to our side and telling us what's really going on. And they include people like Dr. Astrid Stickelberger. Mm -hmm. In November last year, World Council for Health held a town hall together with Astrid and, you know, lawyers and doctors and activists talking about this particular treaty and what it means. So we need people to, to disengage. We need to withdraw our funding from these organizations. Of course, that leaves them with their private investors which is still a challenge. But if we at least take away our national budget from these organizations, they will certainly collapse. They will not be able to function. They will fight that, of course, because many of their salaries depend on us enabling them to violate our rights. But we have no other choice. And like I've mentioned, our budgets are struggling around the world. In South Africa, for instance, over 35% unemployment. 
massive levels of poverty. Over 70% of our youth are unemployed. Our health regulator is captured by the pharmaceutical industry. And just one example of that, and that's SAPRA. Over 70 medical doctors and allied professionals wrote to them via our organization, Transformative Health Justice, telling them that they are seeing massive adverse effects in people taking the C19 injection products. SAPRA never replied for a month. And when they did, basically it was a copy and paste PR statement. Nowhere did they say we're interested in engaging these doctors to see what it is that they're experiencing and to be able to confidently use that phrase safe and effective. Unless they engage with these medical professionals, what they're doing is actually engaging in fraudulent misrepresentation. Absolutely, yeah. But this is of course lockstep. They're operating with their funders, which is the pharmaceutical industry, under the authority of the so-called World Health Organization. In fact, in South Africa, there are attempts to make permanent the draconian rules and laws, so-called laws that they forced upon us via the Health Act or amendments to the Health Act, mm -hmm. which essentially would extend into the foreseeable future, if not forever. So there is a massive pushback against that, but all of it is linked back to the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and of course, the World Economic Forum. Yeah. The other example of how they're operating in lockstep with these bodies is what's happening at our universities in South Africa. So I'm also on the steering committee of Children's Health Defense Africa. And we've been involved in resisting the universities enforcing either you take the jab or you provide a PCR test every 72 hours or however regularly they stipulate it where the majority of our students are poor. And even if they weren't, no one should be forced to that choice, take a jab or do the PCR. Thankfully, the University of Cape Town has stepped back on trying to force that upon its students, but it could be a temporary pause while they consult with their funders and by extension, the WHO, on how to make their dream to inject everyone a reality. And so everything, as we know, is interconnected in this massive, you know, cesspool of conflicts of interest, of funding. And when we discuss what should we do, uh, a doctor that I respect very much said, you know, I've been talking to my colleagues in my country and they say, if we disengage, what's going to happen to the funding that we need for research and for clinical trials? Because what the WHO has done via the pharmaceutical and related industries is made our country's regulatory authorities, academic institutions, journals, etc., dependent on their funding. How do they do that? They hollow out these institutions. They look for the weak point. You don't have enough resources or capacity now. We know because we were part of engineering that. Now you've got to depend on our funding. And then you've got to do what we tell you to do. Hmm. So essentially, we don't have independent science at all because of the mechanisms that they utilize in lockstep. Mm -hmm. um, the thing here's the thing. Um, a, a week ago, we spoke with um, an uh, a blogger and investigative journalist, I guess you might call him in Australia <clears throat> in Australia. He's a German who's been living for twenty or twenty five years there. and he and other <clears throat> independent journalists um, did some research because it was very obvious, and it is very obvious to us as well, 
that if you look at this power system as a pyramid, then at the very top, we have totally corrupt people. To his surprise, however, turns out that it's not just at the top, but there's they have taken these probably past 30 years or so, ever since they started to create their own leaders, which they then infiltrated into our systems so that we would think we voted for them. Um, they infiltrated almost every level of society. Still, the good news is that I think you're right. We are still the 99% and they are still no more than 1%, probably much less. So if we stand up, if we rise up and, um, and, and assert our rights by disconnecting, I think that's gonna do the trick. And that's the only way to go. Don't fight them. Just let them go to hell by disconnecting. Right, make them irrelevant. I mean, if we were looking for protocols and treatment, there are multiple protocols available that mm -hmm. do not require any guidance from the WHO. Yeah. We'd have to, we could go to the World Council for Health website. There's treatments on, you know, protocols and treatments for coronavirus. There's uh, detox or reduction of symptom protocols. And if you were looking for legal resources, we've issued a resource called a cease and desist and notice of liability declaration on anyone promoting, mandating, coercing, or distributing these injections. People could download it and serve it themselves. There's the open letter on the pandemic treaty, but similarly, there are many organizations doing incredible work of proving themselves to be ethical, who do not take any funding from Big Pharma and their allies, and are there for the people, by the people. The other mechanism that is very effective is economic boycott. And so when you identify an organization in South Africa, we have an organization called the Red List, which has taken on that role. When you identify an organization or a body, whether it's governmental or business or otherwise, or even media, that is uh, violating our rights in one way or another related to this chapter, you serve them with a notice to cease and desist. And if they don't, they are added to this list of businesses that are organizations that should be boycotted. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a very effective strategy. I mean, South Africa has used that during apartheid, and so we were very good at utilizing it going forward. And certainly, we would encourage countries around the world to replicate that kind of system and take back, uh, take back their rights. I mean, we also have an independent um, SAVIR, so South African Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, that is independently collecting data that SAPRA is completely ignoring. And SAVs is supported by doctors and legal professionals um, who are our advisors and, and advocates to the SAVs system. And SAPRA initially reached out to SAVs and said, we'd like to collaborate. Uh, but when they realized, you know, we, we're people that have consistently opposed them, whether on the issue of ivermectin, of course, we know repurposed medicines are the only way forward for us as the 99%. Um, they decided they didn't want, want to have anything to do with it. Uh, but we persist, we're continuing to collect independent data, and that's another mechanism we encourage people of the world to do, to set up independent reporting systems, because you certainly can't depend on the other side to report independently and to make the voices of victims heard. Of course, as we all know, Pfizer's uh, you know, shenanigans, to put it mildly, have to some extent been revealed by the court case in the U.S., uh, and now the doors have been open for criminal charges mm -hmm. because they knew mm -hmm. what their product was doing. Mm 
Exactly. And so that's also a topic of discussion in the Law and Activism Committee at the World Council for Health. Now it goes beyond civil responsibility. This is actually criminality yes. and we need to address it as such. Yes, we can show intent now and intent will destroy any kind of immunity that they think they have. They won't have any. Um, here's the thing. This is, I think this is all about democracy, uh, Shabnam. Um, we and democracy means um means bottom up and not top down this is what we've had top down what they call democracy but it is no it there's not even there's not even a, a fragment left of democracy within this system because they have infiltrated everything they've put their people everywhere and now they're trying to gain complete control uh, by uh, more or less dismantling our uh, governments. Well, in fact, they've done it already. I mean, even if you look at Germany, by the way, we have a, um, we have a Secretary of Health who has been uh, caught on camera saying that the, um, emer this emergency situation is our new normality. So we're going to have to live with that. No, we don't. We can live without these no, we people. Don't. We don't need them. They need us, but we don't need them. And we'll show them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I interviewed, um, you wouldn't recognize this book. You can't see it right now, but it's Robert F. Kennedy's The Real Anthony Fauci. I've interviewed yeah. him for Trialside News, which is an independent and objective health science um, journalism platform. And essentially what he describes in that book is not, to some extent, it's very because some of it is new information and he provides the evidence for it. But on another level, it actually isn't. When I read the chapter on Africa, for example, and the experiments being done on African children and Indian children and poor children from every part of the world, that is something that should cry to our moral conscience and say to us, we've got to take a stand. I think it was Einstein who said, you know, the, the one definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Right, Vivian? And what we have to do is do something different. We've got to get out of that system and we've got to create the kind of world that we've always wanted. But the biggest positive development out of the last two years is that we're doing exactly that. Yes. All of us are doing it. All of us that are actively saying there's got to be a better way. We'll find solutions. We'll find innovative ways to do things. We'll collaborate. We'll form this network of solidarity around the world. And it's happening ultimately, if not us, then who, if not now, then when? Yes. Yes. Yeah, there can be no doubt after, you know, this is today is our 98th session of the Corona Investigative Committee. I think we did hear over 150 experts from all over the world, from all walks of science, including Robert Malone, who invented mRNA technique, uh, Mike Eden, who uh, is a former vice president of Pfizer, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course. And there cannot be any doubt in our mind that we do not have a corona pandemic. We have a staged pandemic, and it, it was done uh, by way of the by 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 way of uh, a blatant abuse of the PCR test. Um, it was all invented at the behest of the WHO. It was all invented by a German who calls himself a professor of uh, medicine and a doctor of medicine. He's a complete fake. And unfortunately, this is especially bizarre if you look at our our past, the German uh, uh, past. It was not just a German who invented the pandemic, 
but it was also a German company which first invented the so-called vaccines, which, as we know, are no vaccines. So we, I don't, I, I think we have a special obligation as Germans to uh, do our very best to stop this as quickly as possible in cooperation with you and everyone else. Our 20%, we will turn the tide. Also, Absolutely. The, the and German I just government, make another... also the German government is uh, involved in the patent for the uh, for the vaccine, like yeah. via BioNTech, mm -hmm. you know. So I really do think we mm -hmm. have a special obligation. Yes, it's these public-private partnerships oh that yeah. are just incestuous yeah. and, and yeah. a cesspool of conflict of interest. And again, people's salaries depend on these partnerships they they get into and then can't get themselves out of. And of course, one example is Dr. Andrew Hill. I mean, you might have watched the 18-minute documentary called A Letter to Andrew Hill that features Dr. Tess Laurie, who's of course the co-founder of the World Council for Health, as one of the most ethical and, and respected specialists in her field around the world. And in it, Dr. Andrew Hill talks about funding from UNITAID, which then dilutes scientific integrity <laughs> and being able to serve the people. So certainly there is a lot of work ahead of us to extricate ourselves from their funding. But as to the point I was making earlier where the doctor said, how will we do these research? How will we do these trials? We have to insist that our governments either extricate themselves from destructive agreements with these multinational corporations that sit at the top, all connected to BlackRock and Vanguard, mm -hmm. where they reap the resources from our country where they exploit the people of our country. We need to say these resources belong to our country. If your country is resource rich or your continent is like Africa is in minerals, where are those resources actually going except to these multinational corporations? And if that was not the case, we would be able to fund our own research, our own trials. We would not need dirty money from these, these oligarchs, essentially, and these people who think that they've got our freedom in the grips of their hands, but they don't. Because the power of the people is always stronger than people in power. Yeah, I agree. Well, this is really important because at the, at the beginning of today's session, I was wondering uh, because I hadn't seen what you're going to what you are going to be talking about. I was wondering when will somebody take up the subject of these international health regulations and how the World uh, Health Organization is trying to take over our, in fact, our constitutions. There freely invented rules which make no sense whatsoever are supposed to supersede our constitutions which do have a dem democratic foundation as opposed to theirs they don't, they have no democratic foundation whatsoever what they do have is a foundation of conflicts of interest and corruption absolutely i mean Raina, i think i have a lot of respect for constitutional democracies but i'm inclined towards natural law before constitutions yeah, yeah me too as, as you as you would understand yeah but that's also because our constitutions have failed us yeah many a time they are actually just paper tigers that give us the illusion that we have democracies and so we become complacent they're very well written whether it's the u.s constitution that is you know famous around the world Alex is agreeing there, or it's the South African constitution, which was written under great fanfare as we came out of apartheid. 
but what does it actually mean? What is its actual value when the people don't have a voice Then our parliaments are largely theaters of absurdities? <laughs> Having said that, there are clauses in our constitutions that do protect us and do say that they're supposedly superior to international treaties. And so where it serves our objectives in resisting this power grab, yes, we'll refer to those sections of the constitution. But where they don't, we rely on our natural law, rights and our inalienable sovereignty that no one can take away from us and it's something we have to assert with great confidence we cannot be saying it with any measure of hesitation i'm not sure maybe no there's a bottom line inalienable rights and a freedom and sovereignty that cannot be taken away from us yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. All of us, this is, we have to make this very clear. All of us uh, want to protect democracy. We want to protect the rule of law. And uh, of course, we want to protect our constitutions. But I think we do have to look at it the way that you just described it. Where they protect us, fine. Where they don't protect us, we'll look at in, uh, natural law, which is easy to understand. Everyone understands natural law. Thou shalt not kill, for example, is easy to understand. Not for them. Okay. Absolutely. And of course, we're learning a lot more about natural law and teaching our partners at the World Council for Health. So to your audience, I know you've spoken at one of our general assemblies, uh, Rhino, we're saying that if you want to connect with us, email info at worldcouncilforhealth.org. If you want to become a partner with your organization, uh, you can do that via the website. And if you want to contribute to our hashtag stop the treaty hashtag withdraw from WHO campaign please reach out via the website because indeed our strength lies in our connectivity our humanity and our willingness to to resist with all our might for our freedom and our right to be sovereign beings perfect perfect well, thank you very much, Shabna. Uh, this was a true pleasure because you didn't just point out what is going wrong, but you're also pointing us in the right direction as far as how do we get rid of these bastards? And we will, definitely, even if it takes help from we above, will. <laughs> we will get it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. Important. Thank you very much, Rainer, Vivian, and all the best. And thank you for your amazing work that you've been doing. We certainly will continue partnering with you. Take Absolutely. care. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Now, Viviane, willst du übernehmen? Yeah, so now we're going to talk to Scott, um, Scott Ritter. He's a former Marine, um, a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, and he served with the UN implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq, um, overseeing the disarmament of um, WMDs as weapons of mass destruction. Oh, weapon of mass destructions as a UN weapons inspector from 1991 to uh, through. 1989, and he later became an outspoken critic of the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Scott, uh, are you with us? Hang on, maybe not. 
and also Alex Thompson is with us because he has the expertise to guide us and help us out when we don't know what question to ask. Uh, we do know a lot. We have a lot of questions, um, but I would very much like to talk to Scott Ritter now um, because I have seen some video clips with him and he's one of the most interesting people and one of the most knowledgeable people with respect to the current crisis in Ukraine. Um, Scott, are you with us? I am. Good morning. Oh, wow. Great. Scott, um, I just Hello. mentioned, um, I saw a, a, a great video, a great interview that you did for uh, Rick Walker and Brendan Kennedy, uh, two Canadians. And I, I yeah. all of us were really impressed because it it sort of confirmed what many geopoliticians had told us about the situation in Ukraine, uh, meaning we're only seeing we're only seeing one little piece of the picture, which is probably falsified by the mainstream media. Uh, all of the geopoliticians who we spoke with told us there is another side to this story, and one of the best people to talk to is Scott Ritter. Um, I yeah, go ahead. No, you have me. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions you you, you, you have. Yes. Uh, one of the things you said in that video, in that interview, is that uh, you would not for a second um, uh, deny that the Ukrainian troops are very competent. Uh, they have been they have received billions of dollars from NATO or the US um, over the last, I don't know, decade or so. Uh, well-trained, lots of soldiers. On the other hand, uh, they cannot win this war. Uh, why is that? Well, I mean, military math is is why. Uh, you know, I, I'll bring up uh, you know a, a movie that, or at least a movie reference or a, a piece of history that has become you know sort of myth. Mm -hmm. um, King Leonidas and the three hundred Spartans in the Battle of Thermopylae. I mean, these, you know, depending on which movie you saw, these guys are, you know, all stud warriors. Uh, they can they can thrust spears better than anybody, hoo-yah better than anybody. But at the end of the day, when a million arrows come out of the sky, 300 really brave Spartans die. The Ukrainians are not the Spartans. They're very good soldiers. Uh, they're very well equipped. Uh, and many of them are fighting for a cause that uh, that they believe in, either uh, a, a right-wing ideology that many in the world find odious or for their homeland, which many in the world can sympathize with. Uh, but either way, they're, 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 they're fighting for a cause that, um, that allows them to overcome some of the um, morale-based issues that usually cause armed forces trouble, like when you get hungry, when you get thirsty, when you run low on ammunition, uh, when you're suffering casualties, these are the things that tend to break militaries. Uh, the Ukrainians have shown a, a surprising uh, resilience, um, the, the ability to stay on and fight. Uh, but even despite all this, at the end of the day, military math is military math. The Russians have been able through a very brilliant campaign uh, that emphasizes some of the basic tenets of maneuver warfare, shape the battlefield. Uh, and, and Vladimir Putin alluded to this when he when he spoke about initiating the special military operation. He said, originally, all we wanted to do is go in and secure the Donbas. But then we were confronted by this mass of Ukrainian troops, between 60 and 100,000, 
that have accumulated right on the border of Donbas, uh, what do we do about them? Uh, and if we focus our effort on them, what do we do about the rest of the Ukrainian military? Uh, all 260, well, let's say 100,000, or there's still 160,000 more out there in, in Ukraine with reserves uh, that, that could amount to another 300,000. Then you throw on you know, the popular militias that they've mobilized another 100, 200,000. Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainians out there. And if you just focus on the Donbass battle, you've ceded the initiative to the Ukrainians to respond um, in a way that benefits them. So Russia had to shape the larger battlefield uh, by threatening Kiev, diverting Ukrainian resources there, by uh, securing a land bridge that, that facilitated lines of communication between Crimea and uh, the main part of Russia that involved you know, seizing uh, Mariupol, the, the, you know, et cetera, um, by carrying out a very extensive strategic air campaign that uh, neutralized uh, Ukrainian logistics and command and control. Uh, this was phase one of the operation. Uh, and Russia executed this very well. But a lot of people, for, what I'm talking about right now is what I call big arrow war. Um, that's strategic thinking, big arrow with big arrow results. A lot of people get caught down into what, what I call the little arrow war. That means when you get down into the weeds, war is ugly. And when you fight an army that is as capable as Ukrainians, ugly things are going to happen to you. This isn't all about Russia dominating the tactical situation uh, 100%. It's actually most, most combat is a 50-50 proposition going in. People give as well as they take until some advantage is um, achieved on the battlefield, whether it be a maneuver advantage, a firepower advantage, uh, something of that nature that tilts the favor, the balance in your favor, and then you gradually get control and move, but very rarely in, in modern war, it's a capable enemy, you overwhelm them immediately. A grinding battle, which means, guess what? There's going to be videotapes of Russian columns that have been destroyed. There's going to be videotapes of destroyed Russian equipment, captured Russian troops, dead Russian soldiers. And the media has played these over and over again, creating the illusion of a Russian defeat. But if you walk away from the videos and look at the map, you'll see that it's a strategic Russian victory that's taking place. It's unfolding slower than it would have if the Russians used their traditional doctrine, which emphasizes uh, heavy firepower and mass attack. Uh, the Russians made a decision going in that they were not going to do this because that would result in massive civilian casualties and damage to the civilian infrastructure. So Russia has taken a lighter approach, one that, um, actually puts them at a tactical disadvantage. Uh, one of the reasons why the Russians are suffering casualties is that they have foregone their advantage in the application of firepower. Uh, because if you pound the Ukrainian soldiers to death, you're also pounding Ukrainian civilians to death. And the Russians have said, we don't want to do that. Yeah, are civilians dying? Absolutely, that's a tragic outcome of war. But when you look again, military math, in the study of military history, uh, when you study modern war, uh, generally speaking, the ratio of dead civilian to dead combatant comes down to roughly one to one. It'll, you know, you can go up to 1.2 to 1, 1.3 to 1, uh, et cetera, but roughly one to one. That is, for every civilian killed, there's a dead combatant, whether it be a Russian or a Ukrainian. Um, here, we have a situation where for every civilian killed, you have around five or six dead combatants. Wow. What does that tell you? Wow. It tells you that 
the fighting that's taking place is being done in a manner that seeks to avoid civilian unnecessary civilian casualties. Now, people will say, well, what about all the residential neighborhoods that are being bombed? Now we come to the problem. Mm -hmm. They're being bombed not because Russia says, hey, I want to bomb a residential area. They're being bombed because the Ukrainians have decided to turn that residential area into a military target, either through making its line of defense there or putting logistics, equipment, et cetera, that requires an attack. So what casualties are taking place on the battlefield aren't because the Russians have decided to undertake a course of action that kills civilians. It's because the Ukrainians have decided to create a battlefield where the civilians live. And this is problematic because the international humanitarian law, the laws of war, prohibit the use of human shields. And this is exactly what the Ukrainians are doing by allowing civilians to be integrated into the battlefield the Ukrainians are creating a de facto human shield. And, um, you know, so when all these allegations out here about war crimes, this war crimes, that at the end of the day, if you dig deep into every single one of these issues, you will find more often than not that the problem isn't Russia, the problem is Ukraine. Um, and again, and this all plays into a perception that's being portrayed by the media that is negative towards uh, what Russia is doing. I'm not here to cheer on the Russians. They made a, a, a geopolitical strategic decision um, that they have to explain to the world at some point. They tried to justify it through Article 51, preemptive collective self-defense. I believe they have a case, but it's a tough case to make. And uh, it's someday they're going to have to make that case. But, and, you know, I'm not sitting here saying that Ukraine doesn't have sovereign rights. They do. I'm just talking about the reality on the ground regardless of which side you're on, the reality on the ground is that Russia is winning this conflict. Moreover, Russia will win this conflict. You said in that um, uh, aforementioned video that um, right from the start, it was clear that Russia wasn't wasn't really trying to take over Ukraine. If they had wanted that, they would have had to go in. And again, this is military math. They would have had to go in with a force of soldiers three times as many as the Ukrainians, meaning 1.8 million soldiers, I believe, because the Ukrainians have some 600,000 fighters. Um, and they didn't. They came in uh, with 200,000 soldiers, which means that they must have, because they're not stupid, you said Putin like him or not, but he's a smart person. He's good at what he's doing. So he didn't make a mistake. Rather, he has a different objective, meaning he wants to denazify uh, Ukraine and he wants to protect those people who are um, Russia friendly, which is a large part of the population. Is that a correct assessment? Yes, uh, the 26%, I believe, of the uh, population in Ukraine is um, ethnic Russian. Mm -hmm. And then in a larger percentage, uh, you know, speak Russian as the first language. Mm -hmm. There's another objective, too, which a mm -hmm. uh, military objective, which is the demilitarization. Yeah. That is yeah. the fact that the Ukrainian military uh, had become a de facto proxy of NATO. Uh, Russia has decided that they will not allow this NATO-like structure to exist on its borders, and therefore they're going to dismantle it. It could have been done voluntarily, or it can be done the way it's being done right now, which is through um, the application of uh, extreme violence. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And then both these military objectives are attached to a overall political objective, which is the, um, the neutrality of Ukraine, that Ukraine will not be um, a, a NATO member ever in perpetuity, not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's what precipitated this conflict to begin with. This is the expansion of NATO eastward. Um, you know, despite assurances given back in 1990 to Mikhail Gorbachev that, uh, that, that they wouldn't take advantage of the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. Now, the Warsaw Pact didn't collapse when they do it, but Germany had unified, and that was the beginning of the end. Uh, and everybody knew that when they talked about not one inch eastward, that it was not just Germany they were talking about. They were talking about what would happen eventually when the rest of the Warsaw Pact, um, you know, dissolved. Uh, you know, but this this expansion was deemed to be a threat by Russia with, with just cause. NATO keeps calling itself a defensive alliance, but the fact of the matter is, in recent history, NATO has been an offensive alliance. Mm-hmm. Not just an offensive alliance, but an offensive alliance that's geared towards regime change. The attack on Serbia was designed to remove Slobodan Milosevic from power. The attack on Libya was designed to remove Muammar Gaddafi from power. Um, you know, the, the, the reinforcement of Iraq in 2004, the training mission, certified a military campaign that was designed to remove Saddam Hussein from power. And of course, uh, the, the efforts in Afghanistan deemed to be nation building in nature were in support of regime change of the Taliban. So it's not just that NATO is an offensive organization. NATO is an offensive organization whose military objectives um, almost always include regime change. So now you have this expansive, offensive-oriented um, military alliance moving towards your border, and they deemed you to be enemy number one. They don't use the term enemy, but you are protagonist number one. You are the reason NATO exists in Russia. So as the Russians watch this happen, um, you know they're they basically are saying we're not going to swallow this poison pill. We're going to swat it away. We're going to change the dynamic. And one of the things the Russians, one of their goals that go beyond Ukraine is to redefine a European security framework. They've outlined what that would look like in a treaty that the draft treaty they submitted to NATO uh, in the United States in December of 2021. And this is also one of their objectives, that once the issue of Ukraine is resolved, Russia then will turn to the issue of NATO. And if NATO thinks for a second, that this crisis is over, um, they're they're wrong. And this crisis will be multifaceted in nature. It has numerous components, uh, one of which is the economic component. Mm-hmm. I think today is the day that the gas is going to get shut off uh, throughout throughout Europe if they don't pay uh, if they don't pay for it in rubles. Uh, if the if, if if the German Chancellor hasn't figured it out yet, <laughs> he committed political and economic suicide by aligning himself with the United States on this on this issue. And I think the rest of the so-called democratic leaders of Europe are gonna figure this out too. The wonderful thing about democracy is that you are ultimately held accountable to your constituents. And if you've created a, this set of circumstances that have industries shutting down, heat being turned off, um, you know, your country ceasing to function normally, um, I just I, I always recall the words of James Carville, who was uh, Bill Clinton's um, a campaign advisor back when Bill Clinton was running for office and running for president in the early 1990s. Clinton was talking about foreign policy and all this stuff. 
And Carville said, no, it's the economy, stupid. That's the only thing you need to worry about if you want to get in power. People vote their pocketbooks. And right now, the pocketbooks of Europe are about to become empty. And the Russians know this. So the Russians are going to be pressing forward advantages, not just a geopolitical advantage they're shaping in Ukraine in terms of demonstrated military supremacy. Because this isn't just about beating Ukraine. Russia is defeating NATO. This is a huge embarrassment for NATO. NATO set Ukraine up to fail. And this is on the heels of yet another NATO embarrassment in Afghanistan. So NATO is coming out of this, not looking strong. Don't, you know, Biden, can, Joe Biden can come and give all the speeches he wants to in Poland and in Brussels. But the reality is NATO is impotent. They look impotent. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to react. And now they're talking about spending hundreds of billions of dollars and beefing up their military to respond to this new Russian reality when their economy is about to tank. Where do they think they're going to get that money? Do they think American troops are just going to magically appear on their soil? They don't understand the modern reality of America. You want American troops? You pay for American troops. Because we're going to, A, have to gin up new brigades. We only have nine armored brigades in the United States military. We have just pivoted on a geopolitical level to confronting China and the Pacific, which means many of these brigades are earmarked for potential conflict in South Korea. And who knows what we're going to gin up regarding Taiwan. So it's not like we have a bunch of armored brigades sitting around that we can just willy-nilly throw into Europe. The last time we confronted Russia, it wasn't about armored brigades. It was about armored divisions. Mm -hmm. We had things called the second armored division. We don't have that anymore. We had the third armored division. We don't have that anymore. We don't have, we have two armored divisions, I believe, first armored division and the first cavalry division. Um, and then we have several armored brigades that are attached to mechanized infantry divisions. We don't fight at the division level anymore. We don't fight at the core level. Guess who does? The Russians. They're proving it right now. So, you know, NATO is talking about beefing up its security on the eastern flank with what troops? Who's going to do this? The 82nd Airborne? They are road bumps. I have a lot of respect for soldiers who jump out of airplanes. It's pretty cool. But when they land on the ground, they're still just an infantryman with a rifle, maybe some mortars, maybe some javelin missiles. That's it. And when the Russians come at them with the first guards tank army, they die instantly. You think the Polish military is ready to stand up to the Russians? You think the Romanian military is ready to stand up to the Russians? You think any of the Baltic militaries are ready to stand? You think the four battle groups that NATO has assembled in the Baltic and Poland are ready to stand up to the Russians? They're not because they're small and they don't have any depth. When they get into battle, war is a grinding, bloody process, as Ukraine has proven. And when you take a battal reinforced battalion-sized battle group and throw it into combat, and it grinds down, and you don't have any reserves, it's over. It's over. They can fight bravely, but they will die bravely. And they will be taken prisoner bravely. Um, that's the reality of NATO today. And now NATO is confronted with you know, you know they, they've, they've had 30 plus years of uh, leisure activity, living off of the fat of American military strength. The German army used to be something to applaud. I'm not, I'm not a fan of German militarism, but 
during the Cold War, the West German army was a very competent army, a very large army with large armored formations. Today, the German army is a joke, a literal joke. They cannot maintain their forces. In order to put that battle group into Lithuania, my God, German tanks in Lithuania, who would have thought it could ever happen again? I mean, just the vision of that alone tells you that the Germans are incompetent. Yeah. But now you come to the fact they want to put this battalion there. The two armored brigades that they had, they had to cannibalize because they can't get the brigade out of the out of the concern because nothing works. They haven't maintained it. And even if they got it out, they don't know how to fight. Um, so who are the Germans fooling? And now they want to spend $100 billion to magically recreate the Wehrmacht? I mean, it's crazy, crazy talk. And to what purpose? The Russians do not want to refight the Battle of Berlin. So Berliners, you're safe. The Russians aren't coming for you unless you push it. Unless, you know, we, and then, push and then, unless, unless we push, push it, it and right some, of the, some of this has been happening. Some of this push all has been happening. All the Russians want is a return to the 1997 NATO mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. They're not saying that Poland and the Baltics and Romania and Bulgaria have to leave NATO. No, Russia doesn't care. Stay. Mm -hmm. But what they don't want is NATO infrastructure brought into these countries close to the Russian border. So they want to... Redo, and if NATO would just put on their thinking caps, they would recognize that this is sound. This is positive because anything other than that recreates the Cold War, which a Russia is ready right now to fight. And NATO's not. Yeah. So why do you want to create the conditions for something you are not ready to do? And frankly speaking, will never be ready to do because Russia is getting ready to shut down the European economy. Yeah. Um, and how are you going to pay for this militarization? And even if you do this, does Europe really want to totally surrender itself to the United States? Because that's what's about to happen. Yeah. If Europe buys into this new NATO, et cetera, uh, Europe is going to be, um, you know, subordinate itself politically, militarily, and economically to the United States. Who's making money out of this whole shift to gas? It's not Russia. It's the United States. If, if Europe stops buying Russian gas and starts buying American gas, and if the Americans could provide it uh, in the quantities that Russia, that, that, that Europe needed, uh, Europe's going to be paying through the nose for this gas. It's going to be more expensive. Yeah. So if this is really the direction Europe wants to go, so be it. But if they were smart, they'd consider not only the reality of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but what's happening, what's getting ready to happen economically and frankly, politically to the rest of Europe because of NATO's uh, irresponsible expansion eastward. May I ask Scott at this moment about the thorny issue of Russian troop morale? This seems to be one of the most contested elements of the war in propaganda right now. We see a large amount of Ukrainian signals intelligence uh, rebroadcast by Western media uh, claiming that there are mass defections and mutinies among the naval infantry and the ground troops. Uh, perhaps an over-egged claim that uh, many of the troops are poorly trained and equipped 
Russian Muslims from the Caucasus and Central Asia or the uh, the Siberian Muslim belt and these these men have uh, no affinity with what is going on a lot of desperate call mama type signals intelligence suggesting that uh, the Russians aren't even getting a chance to engage Ukrainian eyeballs because in some calls that have been de uh, disseminated the claim is uh, before we even see them they hit us with their grads now how much of this can you take at face value particularly given that the boss of my old institution the British Signals Intelligence Agency GCHQ Jeremy Fleming said just a couple of days ago in Australia uh, and very interesting that a single source intelligence boss would even dare to say this he wouldn't have done it in my time but he is now saying that what the claim is uh, the Russians are not able to win this war and Putin's uh, bosses uh, military bosses are afraid to tell him the truth this claim has also been echoed by the way by the incoming chief of the British general staff Admiral Tony Radekin um, how much credence do you set in this why would the claim be made at all uh, and how much of a picture can you get from signals intelligence on its own as to Russian morale? Well, let's start with the, 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 the larger picture. Why would they be doing this? Especially why would the head of GCHQ be speaking uh, about intelligence matters of some of the most sensitive sources of intelligence imaginable? I mean, the, the, you, know, you and I both, have, uh, I assume, have uh, worked in the SIGINT field, and we understand that when you get when you finally are able to get into a target through SIGINT, the last thing you want to do is give any hint that this has occurred because in an instant, all that goes away. Um, and, so, and if that's satellite driven, you've lost billions of dollars. If it's tactical driven, you've lost hundreds, if not thousands of hours uh, of trying to position yourself to exploit the, the target. Um, and you may, there's no guarantee you're gonna get it back. So right off the bat, why is he doing this? And the answer is, I believe, not to reinforce the narrative coming from the mainstream media about you know, the demise of the Russians and stuff. It's, to sh it's, it's part of an, a larger, broader information war that's taking place in the West, targeting the Russian population. The, the golden objective, if you combine information war, you create the, the, the concept of inevitable Russian military defeat combined with the economic sanctions that are damaging to create the, the conclusion that the problem isn't NATO, the problem is Putin. The goal of the United States was set up by, Putin, by, by Biden. He, he blurted it out, regime change. Yeah. That's always been the goal. We've never, we've never shied from it. Michael McFaul admits it. If you take a look at the Russian reset in 2009, it was about regime change to replace Vladimir Putin with Dmitry Medvedev, 100% regime change. And when it was failing, Biden, then vice president, flew to Moscow on March 3rd, I believe of uh, 2011, meeting with political opposition leaders that are paid for by the United States and Great Britain, and he said, if I were Vladimir Putin, I wouldn't run for office again because it's not going to work out for you. What are you doing? That's regime change. It's not violent regime change, but it's still regime change. Uh, Hillary Clinton spoke out against uh, Putin's party during the parliamentary elections in December of 2011, causing Vladimir Putin to chastise her and say, you're interfering with our, our affairs, trying to shape the presidential election. Yeah. Um, 
So the goal is regime change, and this is information war. It's trying to create an image of Russian incompetence, military incompetence, military impotence, uh, and, and a de facto they're never going to win, so that the Russian people start to question their leadership. I don't think it's working because Putin's popularity raising just keeps going up. Um, but now we come to, is this true? Because it's one thing about the objective, but now we come down to the nuts and bolts of the intelligence. Is what they're saying true? I don't know. Did you work, Alex, you don't have to answer too much, but did you work the Soviet target or the Russian target? Yes, it was okay. my target. Do you have respect for that target? Absolutely. Do you view them as the most incompetent people on the face of the earth? <laughs> That's the last term I would use for them. Correct. So now I'm going to basically say that to buy into what people are talking about, implies that the Russians are the most incompetent people on the face of the earth when it comes to communication security. Let's start off with a statement of fact. Every Russian soldier, before they went into Ukraine, stood inspection. And the counterintelligence people went through every piece of their kit, ensuring that there were no personal electronic devices. No Russian soldier has a cell phone in Ukraine. So if no I may interrupt you just there, Scott, uh, the, the, uh, the shock and all propaganda of this week from the, I don't think from the official Ukrainian MOD, but from these embedded far-right elements, uh, is one of supposedly a, the corpse of a Russian soldier uh, from which a mobile phone has been extracted, and the uh, troops who've dispatched him call Mama and gloat over how he's now in bits spread over the field. So yeah. how does that square with fairly elementary comsec such as you have described, which even the West in its better days would have done before sending its troops in, into enemy territory? Well, what it, what it squares is we're looking at a very sophisticated information warfare propaganda ploy. First of all, let's talk about uh, the cell phones. Here in the United States, you might be able to find one or two Luddites who haven't put in some sort of um, security code or facial recognition feature or whatever. Um, so the idea that a, a Russian soldier, A, has his phone on him, um, and B, it's going to ring and it's going to say mama. <laughs> and C, uh, and C uh, a third party is going to be able to pick it up and access it. Because my phone, when it rings and says mama, and I hit, you know, I, I want to answer it, it says, please enter your security code yeah. before the phone. Uh, that didn't happen. It said mama. And he, boom, answered. So it tells you it's a ploy. This is pure propagandistic yeah. ploy. Yeah. But even, even the Ukrainians have had to admit, as, as it became clear that their story about cell phones, because the Russian momers are going, wait a minute, my boy's got his phone? How come he's not calling me? Yeah. So you got a million Russian or 200,000 Russian mamas calling the Ministry of Defense saying, why aren't they calling? And the Ministry of Defense saying, because they don't have their cell phones. Well, what about that? It's a lie. Nobody has their cell phones. And the Ukrainians went, yeah, it's not working. So, oh, here's the news story. The Russians are stealing Ukrainian cell phones from the innocent population, and then the Russian soldiers are using those cell phones to call home to mama. Now again, it's the same problem. Let's just say that I'm private, even schmuckatelli, and I've decided I wanna call home to mama. So I find a, a Ukrainian civilian, and I butt stroke him in the face, and I grab his cell phone. Even if I'm clever enough to take his thumb to get his biometrics or hold it up to his face or put a pistol to his head and get the security code. Um, do I remember that? Because the face only works one time. 
Yeah. I can attest now, to this. And also, not only that everyone in Eastern Europe uses security codes and mostly Android based phones as well, but more particularly yeah. that for lack of uh, paid call time, mostly they will use the Viber app, the Eastern equivalent, uh, Eastern European market equivalent of WhatsApp. And again, there you're going to need cell data. And again, Absolutely. the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence service, will presumably, I haven't checked this for myself, for my faults, but will presumably have put a blanket ban on calling numbers beginning with country code plus seven. So there's another obstacle <laughs> there's another, to, the, to this claim, isn't there? This is just pure fiction. So now we, so now we come down to, to the phone calls. So we've established that the likelihood of a Russian picking up the phone and calling home to mama uh, is, is slim to none. Um, but what about these recorded calls? They're all fake. They're, they're literally all faked. They, they are the SBU. And I will tell you, it's not the SBU alone. Uh, even before this war started, the CIA and MI6 was heavily integrate, uh, integrated with the, with the Ukrainian intelligence services. Extremely heavily, going back 15 years before. Right. And one of the aspects that's going on right now is information warfare. The CIA has an entire... In, in, well, MI6 has a, or IO, imagine what IO stands for, information operations. Uh, their whole job is black propaganda. Uh, the, the CIA, under the special activities group, whatever they call them nowadays, and the director of operations, has a political action element, a component of which is information warfare, information operations. They have been working with the Ukrainians from day one to shape this image. And what we're looking at is a very sophisticated information operation where with so-called intercepted conversations. <clears throat> They're not intercepted conversations of secure Russian comms because Russian comms, um, I, I, I just, I have to laugh because the implication is that the Russians can't communicate. Mm -hmm. That's the implication mm -hmm. here that, because some of these calls are from, uh, you know, subordinate officers calling their superior officers uh, with the most whiny of messages. We're hungry, we don't have any ammo, we don't have any fuel, we're scared. What are we doing here? You know, absurd in the extreme. Again, study the Russian target I have. I can tell you right now that the idea of a Russian battalion tactical group getting ready to cross into Ukraine thinking it's an exercise no way. is childlike. They also thinking that, that 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 they don't know where they're going is childlike. These troops have been well briefed on several things. One, what their immediate tactical objectives are, how that immediate tactical objective feeds into an overall operational concept, and two, what their rules of engagement are. And this is a critical factor because there was an interview with a Russian general a couple of days into the war. Because people like myself are going, what are the Russians doing, man? Their doctrine calls for overwhelming artillery fire and then mass attacks. And what I'm looking at is no artillery fire and these, these light probes. What's going on? And what was going on, according to this general, was what they called the Syrian approach. Now, again, if the Western media will say, well, aha, that proves that the Russians are going to blow Aleppo up, level it bringing chemical weapons and kill civilians because that's what we've been told the Russians do in Syria. But no, what the Russians do in Syria is surround a civilian population and then give them the opportunity to evacuate with, um, with, with buses. They evacuate all the jihadists out of the areas around uh, Damascus and in southern Libya, or Syria, and they took them up to Idlib. 
where they're concentrated now. So the Russian approach was designed to deliberately avoid unnecessary civilian casualties, which is a stated objective of the Ministry of Defense. They have ordered their troops not to kill, not, you know, not to target civilians, not to damage civilian infrastructure needlessly. I mean, you never target a civilian, but also to be careful about the application of force so you don't damage the uh, civilian infrastructure. When civilian infrastructure is damaged, it's because the Ukrainians made a decision to turn that into a military target. But my point here is that these troops are extremely well briefed, extremely well briefed, and we know it. So the idea of this poor, besotten, you know, Ivan Schmuckatelli not knowing anything and just hopping in his vehicle and driving along. And, oh my God, I'm in Ukraine. And oh crap, they're firing at me. And oh damn, everybody's dying. And oh, 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 woe is me. Uh, call mama. Um, no, that, that just isn't happening at all. Um, there, you know, the, we, we know this because <laughs> we've seen the Russians. They captured the Russian tanks. And if you look at the Russian tanks, there's secure comms in the Russian tanks. So we know they have secure comms. So if the Russian tanks have secure comms, they ain't using a cell phone because A, they don't have a cell phone and B, it's the dumbest thing to do because the second you use a cell phone, you've given away your location to a modern opponent who is out there with electronic warfare capability, tracking cell calls, geolocating, calling in fire. That's how we're killing a lot of these idiots that, that we, that's how the Russians are killing a lot of these idiots that are torturing um, uh, Russian soldiers, et cetera, because they, they use a cell phone and then they post it on social media. And that creates a signal that then gets intercepted, identifies who did it, and then Russian special forces, who are very good, by the way, come in, grab them, and it's um, it's, it's not going to be a good day for these people. But my, my point is, to get back to the basics here, the, the whole cell phone thing, the whole intercepted phone call thing, just doesn't stand the smell test. Um, it, 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 you'd have to assume that the Russians are incompetent, that the Russians uh, didn't spend um, billions of dollars upgrading their comms. Uh, you know, in 2008, Russia went to war against uh, Georgia. Short little five-day war that they were horrible in. They were awful, and they knew it. The Russian generals afterwards said, man, we're lucky, because the Georgians knew how to fight. The Georgians were trained by Marines. And the Georgians were doing some wonderful stuff tactically, really bad stuff operationally, and a bad strategic idea to go in. But tactically, they were doing well, but they, they lacked the mass. So the Russians were able to come in with artillery and armor and grind them down and, and move on. But the Russians were saying, we're not that good. We're really actually pretty bad. We're lucky that the Georgians didn't have more capability because it could have been a different outcome on the battlefield. So they started a dramatic modernization program and we saw some of this in 2014 with the little green men and, and stuff. But even then, the Russians weren't all there. Around 2016, they started to reorganize their military, going away from a pure brigade model, now bringing back, for instance, the First Guards Tank Army, 20th uh, Combined Arms Army, large yeah. offensive yeah. Brigade. But this is the key, isn't it, though, Scott? It's, it's combined arms, really, because, you know, from, from the end of, beginning of the Cold War on, onwards, they had inherited the operational level of warfare, which had largely won them the Eastern Front. And then combined arms was largely regarded as a NATO, largely UK, Canadian, US speciality until recently. But I think you, you're making a good case here that from about the middle of last decade, Russia has been the master of combined arms ops. Not, not just Russia is the master of combined arms. arms. Look, I used to be the master of combined arms operation. When I was in the Marine Corps, 
you know, I, I came up as a junior officer when the Marine Corps was embracing maneuver warfare in a big way. Uh, from a conceptual standpoint, the philosophy of it in green, General Al Gray was the commandant and he brought it down. And I spent two and a half years in 29 Palms, California, mastering maneuver warfare, combined arms operations uh, at an artillery battalion. Um, and we were, we were self-propelled and we spent 250 days a year in the field firing live ammunition all the time. And we were masters of our profession. Um, well, guess what? We don't do that anymore. For the last 20 years, we've been running around in uh, Afghanistan and uh, Iraq uh, doing low intensity conflict, counter uh, counterinsurgency operations. Um, we were very good at kicking down the doors of uh, civilian houses, uh, shooting civilians. We're very good at dropping drone strikes on wedding parties. We're not very good at combined arms operations because we don't do it anymore. Now we're trying to rapidly do it, but we don't have the military to do it anymore. The reason why I brought up 250 days a year in the field and the amount of ammunition we shot is that's expensive. To, to become really good at this is an expensive proposition and it requires constant training. You don't simply go through a quick course and then go back to the garrison and then suddenly be thrown six to eight months later into the field and be expected to, you lived it, you breathed it, you ate it, you slept it. It was your life because that's the reality. It's so complex. It is so complex, this, this, this kind of combined arms maneuver warfare that you have to literally make it part of your DNA. And we didn't just forget how to do it. We scooped out that DNA and threw it away. We, we embraced you know, low intensity conflict. And now we're looking at the Russians applying combined arms war in Ukraine. And there's a growing recognition about from any military professional that we can't do that. We don't know how to do, do that. Do you think, Scott, that this was the substance of what Sergei Shoigu, the Russian Minister of Defense, said to his U.S. counterpart when uh, unexpectedly the U.S. Secretary of State for Defense accompanied Biden on the, the last bilateral with Putin? Do you think the threat was, we will box you in? Well, the Russians, I don't think, are in the business of making threats. They can imply threats. But the Russians are very sophisticated. I give them a lot of credit. Uh, as, as much as we respect their military, I respect their diplomacy even more. I know Sergei Lavrov. I worked with him. He was uh, at the UN. Um, a very, very clever, uh, intelligent diplomat, backed up with a diplomatic corps that is second to none. Um, so the Russians don't do, I mean, again, that's just one of the things that cracks you. When you hear all these people, you know, well, the Russians are, you know, sending a signal and they're blunt and they lie and they, no, they don't. The Russians are sophisticated. The Russians are polite. Uh, the Russians give you every opportunity to take the off-ramp before it becomes too late. Um, and I think Shoigu was making, the, I think the point that he was making is that um, there is a military technical component to our solution that we don't want to have to apply, that we prefer to do this diplomatically. But I'm here to remind you that if you ignore us, that we've put, you know, we put these this this new security framework out there to be worked out. If you ignore us, I exist, mm -hmm. and I uh, just I'm just here to remind you that I exist. I'm not making a threat. I'm simply saying I exist, mm -hmm. and um, don't forget that. And I think we forgot it. We done we didn't take the Russians seriously. Yeah. I mean this. We 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 denigrated them. We demeaned them. We belittled them. Um, and the Russians right now are basically saying, we are here. Yeah. As Putin said in 2018, 
We told and do you think, Scott, that the US, do you think the US and the British took the Germans seriously when the Germans seem to have been hinting last year that they were in no state, nor was any other continental European armed service to do what might have been expected of it uh, if there was a, a ramping up in Ukraine? Or do you think that the British and Americans continued to fancy that continental Europe would be able to hold out for them yeah. in, the, in the late Cold War model of hold the Fulda gap for a couple of weeks while we arrive? You know, I can't speak to the British um, anymore, <laughs> but, uh, except to say that uh, if I, I, I think the Croatian uh, prime minister got it right when the British minister of defense showed up and, and he said, we're not meeting you. A, you're not a member of the European Union anymore, so why would I meet with you? And B, you're Britain. Mm -hmm. You got nothing, man. You got nothing. Mm -hmm. Your military is a joke. Mm -hmm. Get out of here. When Croatia says the British military is a joke, then the British military is a joke. Um, the player here is the United States. Um, and the United States has become a prisoner of its own rhetoric. You know, we, 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 we're very good at, 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 at throwing words out. We're good, very good at making promises um, as if we can, by creating the perception of grandeur, grandeur actually exists. We saw that in Afghanistan. When Joe Biden in July uh, called up uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president, and Ghani's crying. <laughs> There's a trans. <laughs> he's, he's saying, I got 15 to 20,000 uh, Taliban and Pakistani jihadists coming across the border, and I've got nothing to stop them with except your air power. You're slowing down your airstrikes. We need you to ramp that up or else it's all over. It's done. And Biden said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Shut up. I need you to go and tell everybody everything's going to be okay. We have to create the perception that everything's going to be okay. And this is a direct quote from Biden, even if it's not true. Mm. So Biden instructed the Afghan president at a moment in time when his country is literally falling to the enemy to lie, to create the perception that everything's okay. Now we come to Germany, NATO, and Europe. The Germans aren't stupid. The Germans know their economy better than anybody. And the Germans did the math and said, if we lose Russian gas, we're in trouble. In fact is all of Europe looked at that and said, because it's, it's a cascading effect given the way that you're, it's integrated. You can't just wall off the German economy from Europe. If the German economy falls, the French economy falls. If the French economy falls, the Spanish economy falls. It's a domino effect that happens instantaneously. So all of Europe went, we got, a, we, we got a Russian energy problem here. And the United States said, don't worry about it. We got you covered. We have a plan B. We didn't have a plan B. And Germany has just found that reality out. Yeah. We are told that the plan B was US liquefied natural yeah. gas being imported on, in bulk, which I think even Britain is not really completely set up to do. There is a port in West Wales to import yeah. it. I think Germany has one too, but you can't switch overnight, even if you can afford mm -hmm. American LNG. Well, even if there's enough American LNG, which there isn't. Yeah. You want to know one of the reasons why there's not, not enough American LNG? Because China bought it all. Mm -hmm. So if the Americans are selling it to the Chinese because we're going to get greater profit at a time when Europe says we desperately need it. So how good of a friend is the United States? But even if all of the LNG was sent to Europe, Europe can't absorb it. And even if they could absorb it, it's still not enough. This is why the United States went to Qatar and tried to get uh, uh, Gutter to basically redirect its 
liquid natural. We even went to Algeria and begged the Algerians to send gas to Europe. Algeria told us to take a hike. The Qataris are looking at it. Um, but the fact is, all the assurances the United States gave amount to a hill of beans. They're nothing. Mm -hmm. And now Europe's left holding an empty bag with Russia getting ready to play hardball. Yep. And if anybody thinks that Russia's joking around, I, I hope people come from come out of this understanding that Vladimir Putin does not bluff mm -hmm. at all. And when Vladimir I think the, the strongest testimony to what you're saying there, Scott, is that all the intelligentsia, the pro-Western or Western-leaning, but moderately so, people in all of the countries neighboring Russia are saying, well, we may have to bolt, we may have to flee the region completely, because, okay, we, we have their, our question marks over their reasoning when they say, I don't want to live under a Putin-dominated Europe. You can accept or, or reject that reasoning. But the fact that they are all saying that implies that they who know the Russians better than anyone, these bordering countries know that this is not going to go away anytime soon. The Russians Absolutely. are not uh, off offering a feint. They're actually going to follow through on what they're threatening. Yeah, and, and the Russian, look, I, I don't believe that Russia plans any military operations beyond Ukraine. I don't think, the, I mean, the Russians aren't suicidal. Uh, they're not going to uh, test Article 5 of the, uh, of the NATO Charter. Mm. Um, although I believe if they did test it, Article 5 would fail. Mm -hmm. That's a heck of a game. I do too. Um, just, 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 just in case people were serious about it, that could lead to a nuclear conflict. And Russia's not going that route. Russia is establishing its military credentials in Ukraine. And believe me, once all the propaganda goes away and true military professionals sit down and study what has happened here, uh, the West is going to wake up and realize that Russia's fighting a war that they're not prepared to fight. Yeah. Um, first of all, which Western democracy right now is willing to take thirty to 50,000 dead? Mm, none. 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 None, of, none of them are. So, and that's that's what we're talking about when you fight the Russians. We're, we're talking about, because Russia's not going to come in soft Poland. Mm. <laughs> Russia doesn't give a damn about the Polish civilian or civilian infrastructure. If Russia comes into Poland, they're going in with rolling barrages, they're going to kill everything, and then heavy masses of armor are going to push through and grind everything mm. uh, while air... Where's the Russian Air Force? It's coming in dribs and drabs. Why? They're holding it in reserve. Uh, they, 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 they've displayed the Kinzhal. I, I know I'm saying that wrong because my Russian language abilities were developed in Kinzhal, college. Yeah. 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 Well, I drank beer and played football. But um, <laughs> I do know it means dagger. Um, but they deployed two of them, not because they needed to fire them against the Ukrainian target, but to remind NATO that hey, if you guys really want to play this game, we got a whole bunch of these, and you can't stop them. And whatever we aim them at, they're going to hit. And that includes, for instance, that wonderful shiny building you have in Brussels to call NATO headquarters. It will be gone. Mm -hmm. Poland, you got a Ministry of Defense? Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. England, you think, you think your, your headquarters are going to be untouched? We're going to flatten them. Paris, it's all going to go bye-bye, guys, not with nuclear but with precision strike capabilities, mm -hmm. that's the cost of going to war with Russia. So don't do it. But Russia doesn't need to go to war with Europe because Europe's going to surrender because of the economy. That's the Russian plan. And you know, what did you expect? Imagine, again, Vladimir Putin. And I'm not somebody that believes that Vladimir Putin is a dictator. I'm not, I, don't believe, I think Vladimir Putin is a long-serving, powerful executive at the head of a very large Russian civil service that's very competent, uh, but that the civil service actually defines 
Russia's national security objectives, et cetera. Putin is simply the implementer of the policy that comes up from below. But Vladimir Putin sits down with Joe Biden, who looks him in the eye because Joe Biden is that kind of guy. And um, Biden tells Putin right to your face, don't do it or I'm gonna hit you with the massive sanctions. Yeah. And because yeah. Biden is doing this politically, Biden proceeds then to tell all of America, we're gonna shut down the SWIFT. We're gonna seize their assets. And Putin's going, anything else? You're gonna, what else are you gonna do? Energy independent, okay, thank you, thank you. And you've given me how much time, months, to, to prepare a response? Russia wouldn't have gone in to Ukraine militarily unless they had a plan on how to deal with the sanctions that the United States and the West broadcast. Nothing that happened in the sanctions took Russia by surprise. Everything Russia knew was going to happen and had a plan for it. You actually, said, you actually said, Scott, that uh, not in these words, but Putin was probably jumping up and down with joy about the sanctions because this gives him the opportunity to finally withdraw or disconnect from uh, the dollar well, in particular and other aspects of Western society as well. Yeah, when, when, when Putin came into, came into power, um, I don't, he wasn't anti-West. He was actually pro-West. That's what I was going to ask you was, about. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was just against the debasement of Russia that had mm -hmm. taken, taken place under the leadership of Boris Yeltsin. Uh, but Putin wasn't, you know, I'm going to walk away from the West. It was, I want to learn to work with the West as an equal, not as mm -hmm. a, as a subordinate, um, that I'm going to reassert Russia's sovereignty and sovereign rights. But Putin had an uphill struggle. Two things, three things, actually. One was the heavy presence of uh, what I call carpetbagger Western economists mm -hmm. operating inside Russia, who had turned Russia into a giant uh, money tree for the West, but not for the Russians. Two was this extraordinarily corrupt oligarch class that had basically robbed um, Russia blind by uh, playing games with shares, et cetera, to acquire former state enterprises and turn them into personal monopolies that printed money and turned them into billionaires overnight. And then three was a Russian population, especially in the middle class or the, the emerging middle class uh, and the intelligentsia, uh, who, uh, because of perestroika, actually, look to the West as being their economic salvation. Even though Perestroika was, um, you know, incompetently implemented and maybe um, the, the basic premise of it was uh, not sound, the, the idea was that, you know, centralized economic planning is not the solution that we need to go more to a more capitalistic model, et cetera. And this, this, this influential segment of Russian population bought into it. So even while Russia is lying prostrate for the, the West, the, the billionaires are robbing it, you had Russian uh, business class working with the West, bringing in Western businesses, getting investment, building businesses, building an economic lifestyle. Um, and this business class has some political clout. Some people say that they, they, they constitute 20% of, uh, of the electorate. Um, so now you have Putin saying, okay, how do I navigate these waters? Well, the first thing he did is he, he took control of the oligarchs. He brought them in, he said, you guys got a lot of money and I need that money. So I'm gonna let you have that money, but you gotta learn to invest, invest it within the framework of law. And two, if you get involved in local politics, I'll kill you. 
I'll kill you economically. I'll arrest you. And if you want to play real ball, I'll kill you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just because this is serious. The oligarchs are a threat to Russia. They're, they're a threat to Russian sovereignty, uh, and et cetera. But they're too powerful. They have too much money, too much accumulated yeah. wealth. And a very large number of these oligarchs, including some very powerful ones, such as Boris Berezovsky, immediately fled to London as soon as Putin took office, even though his full intent was not clear. And within five or six years, uh, in the tenure of Chris Steele and uh, others whom I met personally, the Berezovsky clan was effectively steering the MI6 Russia desk. I think that I'm not blowing the gaff on anything here. This is well known now from a number of yeah. investigations that have come out into the open. It was effectively a Berezovsky analysis of Russia by the time of the Litvinenko case. So that, that was clearly playing in the background. And in the end, uh, Putin knew that his worst enemies were almost safe abroad. And some of them fled back to Russia in panic, defected back to Russia because they were afraid of what would happen to them in the West if they played that game any longer. No, you're absolutely right. Look, we could spend a lot of time on Christopher Steele and how Orbis came into being, what Orbis really is. Um, you know, I, anyways, that's a different rabbit hole. But uh, you know, I agree with you 100. percent But you know, so he 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 controlled, brought the oligarchs under as much control as he could. He he took care of the West by national or threatening the national the nationalization of industries compelling Chevron and British Petroleum others to more realistically um, redefine their relationship with Russia because they were just simply robbing the Russians blind because Yeltsin had no choice. So Putin brought this under control and then he, he, he sought to further the economic integration to encourage Western businesses to come in, et cetera. But how did the West respond to this? Both Britain and the United States can, uh, felt threatened by Putin so they, they used people like Michael McFaul and others to promote the democratization of Russian society. Now, in theory, that's not a bad thing. You know, you, everybody believes in democracy, but this wasn't democracy. This was, again, to assert Western control over Russian politics. This is about buying political opposition groups, buying political opposition figures. And so this Western connectivity became a threat to Putin. But Putin was never able to divorce himself from the West because a divorce would be radical, radical in nature. And immediately right. he would have 20% of this electorate who's pretty much apolitical. They're going to vote for you as long as they have economic benefit. And besides, there was there was an octopus reaching both ways. There was the octopus reaching from London and the CIA into Russia because the oligarchs of the previous regime knew very well where Russia's weak points were and knew how to sell the worst story about the, the Putin administration. But there was also an octopus reaching from London, New York and Switzerland into Moscow in the form of the auditors who were auditing everything right through to the military industrial complex in Russia and acting as effectively the front line of Western intelligence. Absolutely. Against, and and that, that, that really took until the mid 2010s to be addressed. So it took a decade or more for Putin to clear the decks to be able to deal with the economic traitors in his midst. One of the greatest uh, intelligence victories the West had among many during this time, because Russia was literally an open book to be plucked, was um, the Cooperative Threat Reduction uh, Program, uh, the Nunn-Luger Act. They created a, an entire defense agency whose sole job was to go in and take control of the greatest national secrets of the Soviet Union, their nuclear infrastructure, their biological and their chemical weapons. And all that involved that the U.S. insinuated itself in there 
and then got upset with uh, Putin when he said, we don't need your money anymore, so take a hike. Um, because it, there was a pure intelligence operation. I mean, it really, that's, that's what it was. It was a threat to Russia. But the bottom line is Putin was held hostage to, to this. You couldn't dramatically break from it because you would get, you could lose an election. That's, again, proof positive Putin is not a dictator. He is vulnerable in, 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 during an election. He could lose an election. Um, so what did the West do? The West just gave him the greatest gift. First of all, by targeting the oligarchs and seizing their assets, they neutered the oligarchs. Now the oligarchs are in Russia with no money, no power, no nothing, and Putin's going, leave. I don't want you anymore. You're traitors. Go. Go back to your mansions. Get out of Russia. I, you're no longer a factor. I mean, Putin is literally dancing a jig because of this, because now the oligarch class has been eliminated. It's no longer... And that the ones eliminated. that were in London all this while who thought that they were buying their freedom by uh, donating to both of the the, 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 the usual ruling, uh, ruling countries in Britain, uh, have suddenly found that they are also out on their ear. They are being held by the short ones, aren't they, and told you yeah. will completely surrender your assets to us and become anti-Putin shill. And they don't even have a yacht to retreat on anymore. Um, so, and then, but then the, the other gift they gave him was this 20% of the of, of the uh, electorate that's entwined with the west there's a divorce now it's an absolute divorce it's a violent divorce but putin didn't bring it on the west did it yeah and so you're not getting the kind of political backlash that would have occurred had putin been the initiator of this divorce and so what instead what now is you have a russian population feeling betrayed by the west and embracing mm -hmm. the pivot that's taking place right now how do we know this? One, I mean, Putin shut the markets down, but then he reopened them and the markets are functioning normally. In fact, they're, they're going up. They, they haven't collapsed the way um, Biden bragged that they would. Uh, two, uh, Putin has been masterful. I don't know what the short, you know, I don't know what the long-term opportunities are for the ruble, but in the short term, what a dramatic thing he's done, linking it to the gold standard and then demanding payments in ruble and suddenly the ruble is a currency of trade. Um, and, and so everything the West thought was going to happen in Russia isn't happening in Russia. The Russian people didn't rise up. The ruble isn't collapsed. The market hasn't collapsed. In fact, the more Russia pivots, the more investors from other non-European entities start to move into the vacuum created by the departure of the West, the stronger Russia is going to get. So, you know, this 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 economic war that Europe and the, Europe bought into, sold by the United States, is turning out to be one of the greatest geopolitical disasters uh, for Europe imaginable. Can I ask you something? But could this be that we're looking at like some giant Truman Show and that, you know, like also the Russians, I mean, it's it sounds very credible what you say here now, but could it be that this whole, um, you know, uh, what credible, I mean, knowledgeable, but can it be that you have, that there's, um, they're actually all in bed with one another? I doubt it. No, I, 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 I no, because to do that, you'd have to, uh, look, I, I can believe that the West can play those kind of games. Mm. <laughs> you know, I have no, I have no confidence in the in the integrity of the West anymore. Yeah, um, or the or the intestinal fortitude of Western politicians. I to watch the German Chancellor get demeaned by by <laughs> Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I'm an American. It made me embarrassed. 
it embarrassed me. Uh, but the Russians, and I know Russians, um, I, I've known them for all my life, uh, they don't play these games. Mm -hmm. The Russians are sincere. They're not perfect. Mm -hmm. They make mistakes. They can lie. They can cheat. They can steal. I'm not pretending they can't. But the Russians wouldn't. There, there is no modern Potemkin village taking place here today. With Russia, what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. And that's a mistake that many in the West make is because they're looking at something and they're thinking, well, what are the Russians trying to tell us here? Yeah, exactly it's, it's not even just the the, 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 the pseudo-military officer class now, it's also the, the politicians, the pseudo-leader class in the West, especially in Britain, who have adopted this Russian word, maskirovka, meaning deception operations. Mm -hmm. And whereas 20 years ago, this was a word that occasionally a colonel would use to say, well, be careful when the Russians are in the field, they might be doing a feint. Mm -hmm. Now it's being, it's on the lips of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you know, everything the Russians say is maskirovka. This yeah, word has right. been denuded of all meaning now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason why they're doing it is that the West has lost all um, intellectual credibility when it comes to evaluating uh, Russia. Um, back, back in the Cold War, you know, we, we were ideologically opposed to the Soviet Union. Um, and we had a class of officers called the Foreign Area Officer. And we had uh, Foreign Service Officers who were specialists. Um, I was proud to be a Foreign Area Officer, Soviet specialty, um, junior. But I, I worked with some very senior guys, who uh, generals and colonels, who had been foreign area officers for some time, had extensive experience. And I worked with. Yeah, and I have to say that, like, like their diplomatic equivalents, the U.S. officers who were in, in responsible for such foreign observation and liaison actually excelled the European officers in their language skills. Something that's often underlooked. The best American diplomats and military officers concerned with the Russian or, uh, or Arab-speaking world actually excelled the Europeans. I was a sad exception. I'm the I'm the guy that brought the uh, the, the 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 average down. Well, that's um, because but, you were playing football and drinking beer, Scott. Drinking beer. That's right. I mean, I told them when they recruited me. I said, "Come on, man. I played football. I didn't study Russian, but um, I did it to impress the girls. That didn't even work. But <laughs> no, but the, seriously, seriously speaking, the, um, the 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 fact of the matter is, what I'm trying to get at is, at that time, the Soviet Union was a closed society. I mean, there were cer certain opportunities to get in there but even when you went in there you were you didn't have freedom of movement uh and so you were forced in order to understand your enemy because you remember sun tzu uh, the art of war know your enemy as you know yourself in order to do that you had to step back and and evaluate what you had which was russian literature russian literature gives you an insight to the russian soul mm -hmm. you had the history of russia uh, and history repeats itself. Never forget that. So if you studied, for instance, the campaigns of Suvorov, uh, and you studied the campaigns of the of, 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 of the Russian uh, generals during World War One, and you were able to get a glimpse into Tukhachevsky, you had a good understanding of the foundation of modern Soviet military thinking. You studied their their history, their culture, um, everything about them so that you could then think like a Russian, think like a Soviet, and then make good sound assessments. And we didn't get everything right, but we tried, and we didn't like them, but we respected them and we understood them because we had a deep-seated knowledge of them. Then the Soviet Union collapsed and overnight that approach went away because suddenly the doors open, we have free access to everything. Now, one would think if that's the case, you immediately run to the archives 
and start reading primary research material. You immediately sit down with the with the former Soviets and treat them as respect, and you talk to them, understand them, trying to find out that's not what we did. Instead of a Russian expert, we had economic carpetbaggers who went in not looking how to understand the Russians, but to exploit the Russians. Mm -hmm. And we did that under Boris Yeltsin. We, we created this notion of democracy when we knew there was nothing democratic going on in Russia during this time. Uh, how could it when you have tanks firing in October 1993 at the Russian parliament? Um, I mean, people tend to have forgotten that. Mm -hmm. How could you speak of Russian democracy when the United States bought the 1996 election for Boris Yeltsin, who would not have won it? unless we came in with millions of dollars, campaign managers, and ran an American-style corrupt campaign so that he ended up winning. Um, so that we spent a decade doing this, and and in the process, all the foreign area officers, the old ones, retired, were pushed aside. The CIA, I, I'm not bragging, but when I left the, when I, when, in 1991, when I, when I left uh, the, the, the Marines, the CIA tried to recruit me to come in and work uh, the, the Soviet analysis decks, because while I had been in Russia implementing the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, I got two classified accommodations from the director of the CIA for my work. I was considered to be hot stuff. Um, and I, I, I turned it down. I ended up going to work for the United Nations. But in, later on in 1992, the CIA, you know, someone came back and said, could you come back? I did an interview with what had become OREO, the Office of Russian and East yes. European yes. Eurasian Affairs. And the head of the of, of OREO, who was a nobody on solo, yeah. was around. Sova was the elite analytical arm of the CIA, the best of the best. Now I come into their replacement and he says, no, we don't need people of your thinking. In one year, my thinking, my approach, which got me two classified accommodations for the director of the CIA, was now seen to be inconvenient. To the yeah, new or, Oreo were my CIA opposite numbers and I would go over most years, once a year to Langley or they'd come over to London when we... And, most of the chit chat was all, you know, beltway bubble stuff. It, it was, you know, uh, I asked one lady over a sort of a British American dinner uh, something about her husband because she was mentioning she'd mentioned having children. She said her assumptions, assumptions. You know, it was all politically correct. Uh, there, there was there was very little interest in Russia as a country. I think by the time I had to deal with the Oreo guys. Right, but if you did, you ever deal with Sova guys? Sorry. Did you ever deal with Sova? No, no, that was before my time. I came okay, well, in in 2001. Silver guys are just the opposite. Silver guys, they, there's a movie. I, I always hate to refer to movies because they, life isn't Hollywood. But they're, uh, they did a, a movie adaptation with Gary Oldman of uh, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. And they have a, uh, they have a, a gathering of the circus at Christmas time. And you see Santa comes in dressed as linen. They're singing the International. And all their small talk is about Russia, about the Soviets. That was Sova. They lived it 24-7. They made jokes in Russian. Uh, you couldn't go out with them. Even if you wanted to talk about American football, they would turn it into something that dealt with I, I met some of these old hands. I think some of them ended up at the State Department's intelligence unit, IMD, oh, yeah. at Foggy Bottom. And uh, a very few went over to defense intelligence. The, the Brits did the same thing. By the end of the 2000s, at the end of my time in service, the defense intelligence staff, the equivalent of the DIA, uh, was still there in Whitehall in, in the, uh, the the Ministry of Defence, um, doing the Russian bean counting, thinking and sleeping and breathing in, in, in Russian. And then they were told, we're going to sell one of our two uh, Ministry of Defence buildings, so you're going to have to cut the defence intelligence staff by as many men as it takes to fit them all in one building. That was the extent of the strategic thinking involved. So again, under the colour of money, 
I think it was more sinister than that. It was, we don't want anyone who understands Russia anymore because they will get in the way of what the management consultants tell us. Please don't tell me they closed down the old war office. <laughs> oh, some years ago, they turned it into a hotel. One of the two, the old, the old or the new, I forget. And on the one on Northumberland Street, it's become a hotel some years ago. Oh, no, I, I used to um, work with DIS quite a bit when I was uh, in Iraq. And uh, I always enjoyed going into the old war office and then working my way back into the bowels to, to get to Operation Rockingham um, and, and who was doing the Iraq thing. But anyways, back to, to, to the point here. My point is, a new class of Russian expert was 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 grown in the United States, um, and I call them Russian exploiters. And then yeah. when Putin came in, they became Putin haters, solely focused on Putin. An interesting, um, uh, I undertook to actually go and research the academic backgrounds of many of these people. Um, Andrea Taylor, uh, she has a double name, um, Fiona Hill, uh, and, 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 and who taught them. The one thing they all have in common is that their PhD theses and their academic um, focus was authoritarianism. Yes. In particular, authoritarianism in the person of Vladimir Putin. So we have an entire class of so-called Russian experts today that don't know anything about Russia. Well, it, they it's, it's cultural Marxist critical theory, isn't it? It goes back to Adorno and Horkheimer and the immediate post-war idea in the uh, in the Marxism in the West about the authoritarian personality. Yeah. You know, so it's it's it has no legitimacy uh, historically. None whatsoever, and yet that's how our State Department, our defense, and our um, CIA. In, our in, in this growing national security um, community, all view Russia. There's no yeah. more Russian experts. I mean, in the old days, you could literally, I could pluck people, and I've done it because I lived that life. If you went to the American embassy in Moscow, and you, and you because back then it was post Clayton Laundry, so there was no more uh, free association with Russians. You could only associate with Western uh, embassies, and we found most of the other Western embassies besides the British to be rather dull. Um, so we associate with ourselves. And so we'd come to Moscow and we'd sit down and you, we had an ambassador, Jack Matlock, who is one of the greatest Russian scholars in history. Okay, that tells you what the focus is. And the people under him were all Russian experts. The number two guy that charged the affairs today in, um, in, 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 in Moscow, uh, knows nothing of Russia. He's not a Russian. He is a diplomatic security specialist. Your number two man is a diplomatic security specialist mm -hmm. in the most important country in the world today when it comes to American diplomatic interaction. We don't have experts. Fiona Hill is not an expert. Uh, not, you know, uh, uh, you know Ann Applebaum, even though she's not in government, is not an expert. Susan Glasser is not an expert. These are Putin haters. I call them Putin whispers because their job right now is to whisper bad Putin things in the ears of government officials but who make policy. Scott, um, since our hosts are German, we should talk a bit about the German BND as well, because right through to my time in the 2000s, the CIA guys who covered Russia would always, after coming to London, they would jet off to Berlin and they would say, well, yeah. Munich in those days, and they would say the 
Germans are the really serious continental partners we have to talk to as well. But is it imaginable that the BND too has gone down this route, uh, that actually regards the Russians as as, as unit, you know, uh, one-dimensional cardboard cutout villains? They used to have much, much better penetration, far, far more Russian speakers and paid agents. Well, the BND uh, here, I gotta, yeah, I, I gotta, you know, I'll try and rely only on what's public. <laughs> but uh, the B, the, you know, the BND through through my, the, you know, the CIA used to have a huge station in in Munich. Um, and it was where the defectors, that, that's where the defectors came through and the refugees and they were all processed through there. And you, you plucked out the ones of value and you either brought and them some, in. And some stayed in Munich to work for Radio Free Europe. Absolutely. Some were turned around and sent back home. Um, you know, so, you know, the, the, you know that, that used to be a thing. Um, around 1990, 1991, that stopped. Um, the, the, there was just a de-emphasis. You know, Munich used to also produce... Um, through Radio Free Europe, Radio uh, Liberty, that they, there used to be something called um, uh, the Foreign Intelligence. Um, Wasn't it just the FIS, Foreign Intelligence Service? No, but they, they used to publish the, uh, the, 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 the press. Uh, every day you could. Do oh yes, it. yes, yes. Uh, that that was directly subordinated to the CIA later on as OSINT, the right. American version of BBC oh. monitoring. Yeah, and, and so basically, they, if a newspaper, FIBIS, the, the Federal Broadcasting Intelligence Service. That's it, and uh, information service. They didn't call it intelligence, um, but they, you know, they they used to translate everything. And so, even though you weren't in right, you could read the Russian newspapers, the local newspapers. You could get a feel. You could get the transcripts of the broadcast, so you could bring uh, the Russian media to you. Um, yeah. That went away. They they just totally shut that down. Germany shifted gears. When the Berlin Wall fell, they 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 became an internally looking force, dealing with the absorption and the challenges absorbing the 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 uh, uh, East Germany, um, and the Russians became a secondary target, as did everybody. There was no longer look when the United you know another program that was run out of Germany that everybody doesn't want to talk about today was the support for the um, for the organization of um, Ukrainian nationalists, mm -hmm. yeah. UN. Now, OUN used to be supported uh, because they were an extension of the Galen organization that created the BND that worked with the CIA um, from 1945 on, uh, using the contacts from the Galen organization, uh, the, the CIA helped direct OUN to carry out a insurgency against the Soviet Union. Um, the OUN did horrible things. They purged the Polish population of Western Ukraine, killing hundreds of thousands. Uh, they killed... Uh, I think the total figures between 250, 300,000 civilians died in the 10 year period. 36,000 Soviet security forces died. Uh, this was big time fighting, but they were defeated. Uh, it was all CIA funded, but then the CIA stopped funding the military aspect of it and started funding the political aspect of it. That is the empowerment of the Bandera mentality, the sustainment of Stepan Bandera as a national hero. So if you want to talk about who gave birth to what's going on in Ukraine today, it was the CIA. But even in 1990, the CIA stopped funding that because it was no longer considered to be important. It was no longer a priority. So German intelligence said, look, if the CIA stops funding the Galen organization's penetration of Ukraine, then it no longer is happening. Because as much as the Germans like to think they have a wonderful intelligence service and they do have some capabilities, it's totally subordinated to the CIA. Uh, and the CIA funds much of it and uh, provides direction. 
uh, for for most of their overseas operations. It's, it's pretty similar to how other supposed heavy hitters in intelligence work, such as the Turkish MIT, mm -hmm. uh, that actually there's more or less one-to-one. -one. There's an American officer looking over the shoulder of every desk officer uh, in these you know, big intelligence services. I think the, ex the exception is the French DGSE, but otherwise the Germans, the Turks, other serious the, players, they, they're pretty much the CIA steel. Aren't that good? So, um, <laughs> Scott, Scott I, have, I have one uh, which I consider really important question. You, uh, When you started out, you said, when Putin started out, rather, uh, he was not anti-West. Um, uh, on the contrary, part of the population wanted to be, wanted to emulate the Western lifestyle, wanted to be integrated. And then over time, it, it seems like they slowly but surely realized that we what they're getting from the West is um, uh, all talk and no action. And in reality, and I think this is what Putin has finally realized is, um, I don't know who said this, either you or uh, no, um, uh, um, an, another former advisor to uh, President Reagan, um, uh, Mr. Are you Roberts. Thinking of Ray McGovern? No, no, it was Mr. Roberts who told us they they should have known this a long time ago, but they kept trying to um, be friends with the West when in reality the West, and I'm not talking about the people, I'm talking about the governments, uh, yes. when in reality the Western governments, in particular the American governments and the British and the Germans as well, um, really were their enemy. Now, the, the important question is this. Uh, we... We have spoken to a number of uh, geopoliticians and um, and uh, journalists and historians who told us, ah, don't be fooled, Putin, just like Xi Jinping, but Putin is completely in line with the World Economic Forum because he used to be. He used to be at their meetings. He used to uh, speak very favorably um, of the World Economic Forum. The big question is, has he finally realized, uh, despite the fact that he too went along with the uh, uh, corona, anti-corona measures, et cetera, et cetera, maybe not as bad as the rest of the world, uh, Western world rather, but has he finally realized that it's time to disconnect from that World Economic Forum as well? Because, you know, we started out, this um, uh, committee started out investigating the corona scam and uh, very quickly realized this is part of the Great Reset, which I come to believe uh, the Ukraine crisis is also part of. Has he understood that he must divorce from that uh, part of the West as well, or is he still with it? What do you think? Well, to answer that question, I'll just take you back to 2007 in the Munich Security Conference, where Vladimir Putin was brought in as the um, as keynote speaker under the presumption that he was going to basically bow down to the West and 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 allow the West to, you know, kiss the West ring and they would anoint him and he would become part of the team and, and all this. And he did the exact opposite. He gave one of the greatest speeches in modern history. Um, and, and I mean that. Listen to the speech. A, it's a courageous speech. He's standing before the collective power of the West, uh, people who have held their nose over him but are getting ready to anoint him as the legitimate successor to Boris Yeltsin because now Putin's going to play the game. That's what they thought because Putin had been talking about 
wanting to be part of the West. Mm -hmm. But Putin came in and said, I don't want to be part of you because you stink. <laughs> he, told, he literally, he told, he said, you guys revolve around a nation that lies. The United States, they lie. They went to war in Iraq. Do you understand what you have done? I think was one of the lines from his speech. Do you that, understand? That's the title of Thomas Roper's first book, by the way. The book of Putin's speeches translated into German. Do you understand what you have done? I mean, it's a wonderful statement because it's a bold question. And then he sat down and he said, the day of the unipolar war world is over, that we are no longer going to be part of a world that gravitates solely around the United States, that instead we are going to build a multipolar world of which Russia will be one among equals. And, um, and, and, and his speech was, was brilliant, but that's the point when you realized that Putin was done. But Putin, as I said, he couldn't just walk away from the West because he had his economy was integrated. He had the oligarchs he had to worry about. He still had the the, the influence of Western um, money. Uh, the price of oil hadn't quite risen to the point where Putin could declare economic independence. I think that came around 2012 and after that. But he put the marker on the table that said, I am not your tool. I am not your fool. Um, now, what was necessary from 2007 onwards was to create the conditions for the divorce. And the ultimate condition was that the West would have to initiate divorce. And wow, guess what the West just did? Initiated the divorce. It's the greatest gift Vladimir Putin's been given by anybody. And the West doesn't even realize they gave him this gift. Wow. So, so a, a great deal of Western petulance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, why why do you think he played along or at least that's that's the impression that we have he played along with this corona hoax in his country well i i, I can't comment on on that um i i think you know in terms of i mean I, I think a lot of political pressure was brought to bear by the perception of a of a pandemic threat that had to be um handled and um again putin is not a dictator he's a political animal and he's held hostage to the same uh, fears that um, that every other population had. Um, he also had the requirement of how do you, um, when the world has defined the conditions for interaction to be, um, you know, full vaccination programs, um, then how do you do this? And he decided that he was going to have a Russian vaccination program, not to be reliant on the West, etc. But ultimately, at the end of the day, to be honest, it's it's not something that I've spent a lot of time mm. on. I I, I I would hesitate to uh, speak with any uh, authenticity about this. Um, I'm, I'm how's, how's about this, Scott, as a, as a working theory? Putin is known to be quite a germophobe. Uh, he has in common with Trump that he's germophobic and teetotal. And uh, it seems that he spent some uh, of the initial months of COVID in semi-isolation and seems to have been almost paranoid that the Americans were out to get him through biological means. Could it be that he took one look at COVID and thought, this is a US biological attack on China that's blown back? And uh, could it even be that uh, with the current Ukrainian situation, he's thought, if I don't act now, there will be the Russia-focused equivalent of the China-focused COVID biological attack from the same players? It, it could be. I, I just don't have any insight into that to, to speak about it in, a, in an intelligent or informed uh, fashion. What I what I would say though is, you know, taking everything you said as a as, as a as a premise, um, 
the Russians taking over these biological research facilities and getting access to the documentation they contained about the work they were doing uh, would only feed that paranoia. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we, yeah. the United States has a lot to answer for regarding what the, um, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency was doing in 2016. Well, with, with the Brits there as well, you know, because an interesting crossover is in the mo recently released Russian MOD uh, finds the documents about Ukrainian receipt uh, or, or transfer of biological um, uh, pathogens to the Brits. Uh, the name of Professor Maria Zambon comes up a lot, and she is the head of reference microbiology for what is now called the UK Health Security Agency, formerly known as Public Health England. Her name and official address is on these Ukrainian lab documents as receiving Ukrainian uh, uh, strains or samples of, um, of, of biological uh, of pathogens. And she is the same woman who uh, is involved in uh, referencing the um, Christian Drosten paper published in January uh, 2020, I think it is. Uh, and that detail is available on one, one website, to my knowledge, in an article from a year ago today, April 1st, 2021. Uh, the title is something like uh, PCR Scan Part 3, and the, it's on the website conservativewoman.co.uk. So key figures like this Professor Maria Zambon uh, seem to be involved in the Ukrainian biolabs right at the top. And at the same time, you know, in the... Um, uh, in, in the in the 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 fonts at Origo, the absolute source of the of the COVID scam, the Christian Drosten paper. Um, again, divorcing myself from the 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 COVID aspect of it because it's just it's I'm not I'm not a um, a specialist in this at all. Um, I can say that the you know you know this the special relationship mm -hmm. isn't a special relationship. A relationship is two equals. Yeah. This is the special prostitution of England, uh, where yeah. England is bought for and everything. And what we do with England is that we allow them to believe that they're a player by throwing them the odd bone that... Uh, that this, this goes right up to our nuclear weapons that we can't fire without the US say so. And I, I, don't, I don't think you're in full agreement with Joel Skousen, for example, but you'll know of him as an analyst. And one of the things he claims is that since the Clinton era, under PDD-60, a presidential directive, the contents of which are secret, he thinks that not even US submarine commanders, that not even the bomber boats can fire their nukes unilaterally, that the, that the world thinks they can, the US military as a whole thinks they can, but actually, allegedly, according to Joel Skousen, not even the, the US commanders can do that. It would all have to go through the Pentagon and ultimately through the West Wing of the White House. Mm -hmm. this this kind of authorization but certainly the brits have been prostituted in that way we're regarded as good at soft power propaganda pr public relations wordsmithing uh, even up to our top intelligence officials now uh, are regarded by the americans as a good asset to use because with that suave voice they can speak in canberra in the latest example and say putin's already lost and it somehow sounds more convincing than an american <laughs> saying the same thing you, you 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 but you hit it on the head you you literally hit it on the head the simplicity um I, and when i was at the un i worked very closely with dis with uh, uh with the, the british military component of gchq the operational guys uh seven squadron and all those people um and <laughs> it was a joke but we were getting ready to brief an operation that i was that i was responsible for and I'm the guy. I conceived it. I commanded. I'm running it. But uh, my American boss said, um, 
hey, can we get, and he, he mentioned the name of the, of the Brett, can we get him to do the presentation? I said, why? He said, well, I mean, he's knowledgeable, right? I said, no, he's very knowledgeable. He, he's, he's as knowledgeable as I am. He speaks with a British accent, and they eat that stuff up in Washington, D.C. So, you, we you know, really when, when, you, when you speak like this, it's rather difficult for your American opposite number to, 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 to criticize or, or object to what you say. You know, it, it all sounds rather, rather spiffing. Well, yes, and A, we're smiling, and B, we're intimidated because we're like, wow, he must have gone to Oxford or something. But, uh, and the same thing, to be honest with the Germans, um, I had a, a German rocket scientist, literal. Um, working uh, with me, uh, I won't use his name uh, to, uh, out of respect for his privacy. But you know, again, if you wanted to make a point about the seriousness of the science, you didn't have me speak because no one's going to take me serious about the science. My job, I can be serious about muscle. I can be serious about violence. I can be serious about being tough. But if you want to talk about the serious science, we brought in the doctor. And the doctor spoke in his German voice, and he achtung, achtung, there's right now, and everybody went, This, oh this, this God, isn't just a one-off. So I mean, you know, Henry Kissinger, there's all kinds of wacky theories about whether he represents Zionist interests or whatever, but a lot of people have testified that in private he has much less of that hammy German accent than in public, because it is the best cover imaginable for the fact that ultimately he represents the Cecil Rhodes Round Table, Anglo domination of America. Mm. What's the best cover for that? Sound like a German villain. Klaus Schwab is the same trick. Yeah, maybe Klaus Schwab. I'm just saying that the. Yeah, the, the, the accents were, it, it's shallow to say that because it didn't change the substance that was being briefed. But the, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, accents do, do matter. I, even when I spoke, you know, the, the United Nations does not like Marine Corps knife hands. This is how I speak. I do knife hand um, because I'm either pointing at you or I'm slashing your throat. But it's well, we, we interpreters don't like it because if you whack the microphone, now ears suffer because we've got the right. headphones on high volume. A big problem. Um, but and so the one time that I was asked, it, they tried to keep me secret from the media for a long time, but the Iraqis made that impossible by publishing my name um, and calling me the most evil man on the planet. And so I, I had to present myself before the uh, international press community as part of you know here are your inspectors. And I had come back from Iraq after a long period of time where my hair was quite long. And, um, and I, I was going to go get a haircut for this briefing. And Charles Dolfer, the, um, the, the, the American deputy, said, no, no, no. Keep the hair long. Fact is, comb it out so you, I want you to look like you are some sort of, you know, I, he said, you got to wear, I want your arms like this, no knife hands, arms like this. And when you speak, I want people to think of you as, sort of a lost poet. I want, you, I want people to look at you and say, oh, he's a soft, lost poet. Um, the last thing I want is for you to shave your head, stand up in front of him, and knife hand him to death. And so they actually held me back till the very end when they brought me out and I was supposed to stutter a little bit. And oh, my name is this, oh shucks, I got long hair, I'm a poet. And it didn't work because somebody asked a question that I got mad at, my eyes were sharp and I knife handed him. But um, the, you know, it's it's all there's a lot of posturing that takes place when you get involved in international politics and in the American arena to get back to what you know, accident is a uh, it's it's a real thing <laughs> we're, we're intimidated by it <laughs> Fiona Hill what else gives her credibility her knowledge no 
But when she speaks, she speaks with a British accent. <laughs> yeah. You can get away with anything, even with the European continentals. For example, Fiona Hill, who comes from uh, County Durham in the northeast of England, claimed that she couldn't return the call from the White House at a crucial moment in the in the Russiagate scandal because she was visiting her relatives in nor the northeast of England and, quote, the village is so deprived that there is no mobile phone signal in the village, so I didn't get the call. And this was written up by people in a senior level in the, in the Brussels press as what a symbol of how backward Britain is and how proud we are to be in the EU. You know, <laughs> nobody questions it if it's said in an awfully nice British accent. <laughs> Except if you were there, you got perfect cell signals because Britain has a wonderful <laughs> cellular infrastructure. Yeah, no, I get it. It's uh, so anyways. I have a question. We... I was. I, I'd be interesting. Uh, interested to learn a little bit. Uh, uh, you know about EU experiences with the uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, tracking that you did in in Iraq. Well, um, let's let's back up because people. One of the questions that I always got when I used to speak about this is, um, how did you become a weapons inspector? And I always answered, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a rocket scientist, I'm not a nuclear physicist. Well, then why are you a weapons inspector? Because I'm a Marine Corps intelligence officer who isn't afraid of anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's why I was brought in. I, I joined the Marine Corps and uh, I was commissioned in 1984. As I mentioned, I spent a lot of time in the deserts learning how to kill Russians. Um, but then they, they signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in December of 1987. Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan signed it. And suddenly, uh, the United States was in the business of cooperating with the Soviets, the evil empire, to eliminate entire classes of dangerous nuclear weapons. And the Department of Defense created an organization called the On-Site Inspection Agency that was going to implement this. And the On-Site Inspection Agency needed foreign area officers, Russian speakers of the grade of colonel, well, general from the top, but mainly colonel, lieutenant colonel, and major. They didn't want anybody below the rank of major because you don't make foreign area officers below the rank of major. They, 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 you, you pick them as senior captains, you train them, and by the time they're in the field, they're majors. Um, and the Marine Corps was asked to provide a, uh, a, a number of them. The Marine Corps found one of the most qualified guys, a guy named uh, Larry Kelly at the time was a lieutenant colonel, uh, best linguist in the, in the, in the world. They call him Pulamyuk because he spoke so fast. The thing that gave him away, the KGB said that he speaks perfect Russian, which is why we would know if, if yeah. he was an American spy, because no Russian speaks grammatically correct Russian like he speaks. His Russian was perfect. Um, you know, and, 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 and once again, I have to throw in there, the Americans do this better than the Brits and the Europeans, contrary yeah. to what many people think. Total immersion. I mean, these guys uh, have a, they, they go through the Defense Language Institute uh, which used to train people in mediocre Russian. Then a guy named Roland LeJoy took over what's called the United States Army Russia Institute in Garmisch, Germany, which is a finishing school for foreign area officers. And he looked at the horrible quality of linguists coming out of Defense Language Institute, and he did something that nobody ever did before. He started failing people. And in the military, if you fail out of the school, your career is over. And they went, well, no, no, you're ruining people's career. And he said, no, you were in their career. I let him graduate DLI without knowing Russian. So suddenly, they, they started taking their language serious, and then they went to Garmisch. It's a finishing school where they literally had a village populated by Russian emigres, and you spoke Russian 24-7, immersed in Russian culture. So that's the quality of people that they were looking for to go into the Soviet Union to implement the on-site inspection agency's mandate of, of, for the INF Treaty. Marine Corps just didn't have that then. They went down to their database to find captains. 
the one captain they did have who was on the hotline uh, in Moscow, very good linguist, uh, he got pulled out and sent to the military liaison mission in Potsdam to do an emergency replacement of an officer that ran over a Spetsnaz guy and got persona non grata out. So no captains. They come down to lieutenants. And my name pops up on the list because I was a Russian history major with a military specialty who took two years of Russian language. And, and I had been foolish enough to write a letter to the commandant of the Marine Corps uh, requesting to be directly accessed into the intelligence branch, even though you normally needed three years of combat arms experience before they would let you become an intelligence officer. But I said, no, I'm a Russian expert. They make me an intelligence officer, and they did. And so my paperwork and my bluffing came back to haunt the United States because they said Ritter is the guy. He's a lieutenant, but he speaks Russian, and he has all this stuff. So they pulled me in, and they quickly found out that I was literally the least qualified person in the world. I didn't know anything about missiles. I didn't know anything about disarmament. And I didn't speak my Russian. Before I got, I was picked to go over with the advanced party, which says something about some other things I brought to the table. But um, before they sent me the advanced party, there was me and another guy, a, 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 a very good officer who came from Dead A, which was a special forces unit in Berlin. Um, so unconventional warfare guys. And he and I were brought in because we both took college Russian, but they quickly realized that we couldn't even say good morning. So they sent us to a this is beginning to remind me of a, a British army captain at the beginning of the Second World War who was asked by his colonel, I think it was, any special language skills? And he said, well, I do have a degree in hieroglyphics, sir. What? Hieroglyphics, sir, the language of the pharaohs. Jolly good. I'm posting you for the rest of the war to Torshaven Pharaoh Islands as the liaison officer. <laughs> there you go, because you can speak the language of the pharaohs. But they, they, they sent us to this two week course. and They brought in this poor Russian um, teacher uh, and the, the, the other officer and I would go and spend three hours a day getting total immersion language from her. And at the end of the two weeks, she was in tears, crying, how she had betrayed the United States. She had let the general down because me and this other officer were still the worst linguists the world has ever seen. But once I got over to the Soviet Union and spent two years living there, my Russian got better because you're living it every day. It's better. But I did that job for two years. And like I said, um, I got very good experience on the ground experience in um, on-site inspection, which had never been done before. So I'm one of the guys literally writing the book on on-site inspection and then how intelligence relates to on-site inspection. Um, when I finished with that job, um, it was in uh, the summer of 1991, Saddam Hussein conveniently invaded Kuwait and our focus became on how to evict him. Uh, long story short, I got sent to uh, uh, General Schwarzkopf's headquarters in Riyadh um, and I was given, because of my missile background, given the SCUD portfolio, I spent the war working with SAS, British uh, American Special Operations Air Force, trying to interdict um, Iraqi SCUD missiles before they could be launched against Israel or the, uh, the Gulf Arab states. Um, the war ended. I had what's called a good war, meaning A, I lived, and B, I did well enough that I got um, a good, uh, good reports written about me. Um, then I, I was going to leave the Marine Corps and, uh, because this, the Cold War was over. I was a Soviet guy. And uh, the, the game had changed. There's no longer the military liaison mission, which was my dream, to go work in Potsdam spying on the Soviet group of forces in East Germany. Uh, that's gone. The, 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 the posting to the embassy had stopped being where you uh, evade the KGB to take photographs and became where you just simply go to diplomatic functions and, uh, and become happy. 
Um, and I just said, I don't want to do that. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps to be a warrior, not to be there. And if the, if the game is peace, then I need to go and do peace. But it, uh, there's a there's a movie, Al Pacino and the Godfather. Just when I tried to get out, they dragged me back in. And that's what happened. I got dragged back in to, um, to the United Nations. Uh, a colonel I worked for in the Soviet Union was now the chief of, uh, the chief of staff, director of operations of uh, the United Nations Special Commission, which had been created by Security Council Resolution to disarm Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. And I was brought in to create an intelligence unit um, because of my arms control experience, my experience with on-site inspection, intelligence, and my wartime experience. My job was to create this unit so that we could receive information about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and turn it into actionable intelligence that inspectors could use on the ground. And what quickly happened is I became not just the guy receiving it and assessing it, but then I would write the operations and then lead the inspection. So I was literally a complete circle when it came to the inspection process. And uh, I did that for seven years. And I, um, I, I, I went into Iraq more than 40 times, 14 of which was as a chief weapons inspector. Um, and I uh, became um, well regarded, I would say, um, as, as a very professional uh, inspector who uh, was assiduous in in the application of my job. I resigned in uh, August of 1998 uh, in protest over um, what I called American interference in the work of the inspectors, meaning that my job was to implement a Security Council resolution um, not to facilitate unilateral American policy, especially when the policy objectives were no longer linked to disarmament, but rather using the disarmament process as a vehicle to achieve regime change in Iraq. Very uh, similar to uh, certain American figures walking into the OPCW in The Hague some years later and making naked threats. Absolutely. Uh, well, they they were more naked then because uh, I think the, the one of the reasons why there's so much animosity between me and the United States is uh, you couldn't threaten me. Um, when I when I resigned, actually, uh, I was getting ready. This, to see this is why you, they, they want the, ex, the guys with expertise and also the guys with cojones out of there, because the, there, the, the, yeah. the, the the guys wearing the suits or the civilian suits or uniforms who are who wear the label expert have to be biddable. They have to be malleable. And if they are not either frightened or stupid, then you can't uh, bend them to your will. So they have to go. Yeah, when I when I was going to resign, I was actually summoned by the CIA liaison uh, to the U.S. mission in New York to his office. Uh, and he and I were, I can't say we're best friends, but we were friendly. We knew each other. We worked with each other very closely. Um, and he liked me. I liked him. And he said, look, uh, you got to, the, the, the National Security Council was called and uh, they've asked that they get to talk to you before you resign. Uh, could you at least give them that courtesy? I said, absolutely. So they, he put me on the phone with a very senior member and um, they were trying, they were begging me not to resign. It'll be the end of UNSCOM. We need you, da, da, da. And I said, well, but are you going to continue to interfere with the work of the inspectors? And they said, well, you know, I said, it's a yes or no question. Are you going to continue to work? Because I can't be part of this. Well, you know, Madeleine Albright, and I said, so the answer is yes, you're going to continue to interfere. Well, yes, our policy isn't changing. And I said, then I have no choice but to resign. And I hung up the phone. And the CIA guy looked at me and he said, just so you understand, that as soon as you walk out that door, our relationship changes. I like you as a friend, but you are becoming an enemy of the United States. And the FBI is going to blank you in the blank. He said, I'm just letting you know up front that that's about to happen. You make this decision out the door, the FBI is going to screw you. And I said, so be it. And I walked out the door, submitted my letter of resignation. And that night, the FBI began their process of screwing me. They immediately um, 
seeing uh, uh, CBS Evening News, Dan Rather, you know, breaking news. Uh, UN Weapons Inspector Scott Ritter, who has resigned, is under investigation from the FBI Whoa. for spying on behalf of Israel. And it wasn't just spying. These are espionage charges that carry the death penalty. Um, serious. Well, charges. you've outlived both Albright and Rather so far, haven't you, Scott? I'm doing all right, but uh, the point is, they try to intimidate you. They, they literally they play the game of intimidation. Um, but that that's that's it. But the thing that I came out of the inspection process with was absolute knowledge about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs. I mean, I, I hesitate to say that as an intelligence officer because nobody, you know. But as much as anybody could understand Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs, I did both from the Iraqi side because I had investigated them for seven years uh, and had met with the highest levels of their leadership right below Saddam Hussein on down. I knew all of their scientists. I've been in all of their facilities. I've read all of their documents. Um, I had access to all of their contracts, even the ones they didn't think we had access to. Uh, I knew that. And then I also knew what the world knew because I was the senior liaison to DIS, to BND, to Jordanian intelligence, to Israeli intelligence, where this notion of me spying for Israel comes in, French intelligence, everybody who had, was anybody in the Iraq WMD game, the data that came to the UN came through me uh, and was turned into inspection. So I knew everything anybody knew about Iraq's WMD, which is why I was comfortable when George Bush started to build the case for war, saying Iraq has reconstituted its WMD and it retained WMD. I was comfortable saying, what WMD? Because when I left, there wasn't any. We had, were monitoring the totality of their, of their industrial infrastructure. They weren't building WMD, we knew it. We had accounted for 90 to 95% of their known WMD capability. And what we couldn't account for wasn't because they were hiding it, but because it had been blown up, buried or dispersed. Um, and what we were, the big things we we're worried about, for instance, biological growth media, um, it, it, it doesn't last forever. Uh, it, it ages out and they had last bought it in 1990. Even a non-specialist like me, you know, the first thing I was told when I joined the GCHQ CBRN team is a biological is the most difficult to weaponize. You cannot keep stocks for any length of time. Well, the Russians never weaponized, I mean, the, 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 um, the Iraqis never weaponized it. They put it in a weapon. That's not a weapon. To, to turn biological agent into a weapon, you have to be able to disperse it, either as a dry powder or as an aerosol. Uh, the Iraqis were never able to master dry powder technology and their botulinum toxin, which could have been dispersed as an aerosol, instead was put into a ballistic missile warhead uh, as a canister with liquid sludge. And the only way it would kill you is if that warhead actually came down and hit you on the head. Because if the warhead missed you, it would hit the ground, break open and the sludge would seep into the earth. And it's not gonna, unless you pick it up and start lapping it up. <laughs> Um, you're not going to get sick. So they didn't have a biological weapon. And so, but now, you know, Paul Powell is waving the vial. Of Actually, Scott, I, I think that that claim has now been made in the Skripal era with the uh, unfortunate victim, Dawn Sturgis, wasn't it? And her, her partner is said to have found a perfume uh, box by the side of the road, unwrapped it and, and sniffed it. You know, that, that's supposedly where this, this aerosolization came from. Well, you know, who knows what's going on with that? I, I just, again, all I can say about the Scripple affair, because I'm not an expert in it, is if it's the world's most deadly substance, it's not very deadly. That's all I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the right. same thing with Navalny was apparently uh, attacked by it, and he's still alive. Um, so who knows? But the you know the bottom line is my experience with Western intelligence uh, in the post Cold War era is that the intel intelligence services have by and large become politicized. I watched it with American intelligence. I watched it with British intelligence. I to give you an example, the British used to be the most honest of of all the nations that worked with us on Iraqi WMD from the very beginning. Uh, I, and I had a very close relationship with them. I mean, I would be brought into the bowels of the old war office uh, and, and brought into an office and they would literally unlock their files and say, Bill, you don't allow that to happen unless you have a good relationship because I would they, they wouldn't. Those guys wouldn't allow that with just any old American either. It has to, there has to be personal rapport. Absolutely. And we had a great rapport and I, I would, also come back and when I would come back from an inspection, I would land in Heathrow, take the tube uh, to to, uh, to to old Whitehall area and be brought into uh, the old war office where I would be brought up to the director of BIS, a, a British uh, flag rank officer. And I would be brought to a table where he sat and all the colonels and all the majors and all the other generals sat. And I would debrief them about what happened in Iraq, a very personal debriefing. Um, I had the permission of the United Nations to do this. I'm not breaking you know, rank, but I'm just saying that that's a very intimate uh, relationship that I had with the British. They never lied to us. They always helped us. Um, but what, 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 what happened in the end, in around 1998, um, the, the, the British gave up hope of um, of being able to disarm Iraq in accordance with the will of the United Nations. And instead, they bought into the American notion that the only solution to the Iraqi WMD problem is regime change. And they shut and this, down- This is, of course, government. because this, is, this was the first year of the Clinton-Blair special relationship. Mm -hmm. And that one only lasted two or three years when they were both in office together. But um, it was really a special relationship because those two guys saw eye to eye on how they wanted to remake the world order. Well, they, 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 shut, they shut down the cooperation. To give you a, an idea of the level of intimacy of this cooperation, um, there, there were two big projects that I was working with the British in, in, at, at that time. One was a SIGINT project, where we had uh, British uh, military um, SIGINT operators uh, covertly inserted into Iraq um, doing a job for the United Nations, not for anybody else. Um, and, and the British were very good about that, understanding how this worked, that we controlled the take, we controlled who, who uh, assessed it and all that. But I, you know, because it's good liaison, you make sure the Brits get, get, you know, get what they need to get um, to help us. And then the second one was with MI6. Um, and we were involved in, a, uh, in the covert penetration of, um, of a Romanian um, uh, uh, aircraft missile production company, Aerofina, that the Iraqis were in the process of trying to buy 51% stake. How do we know that? Because the British and the Israelis were working in a human source and we were getting the documents from them. Now, you know this, if you're a human source and you give documents, those are some of the most closely held secrets ever. Right, so that'll cost you your life. Yeah, why are they giving them to me? Because they trust me. Why are they allowing me to fly to Romania to meet with the SIS, uh, Chief uh, of Station, who introduces me to the Romanian intelligence counterparts, so we can run this operation. That's the level of intimacy. Overnight, overnight, they shut these down. 
on instructions from the United States because helping the United Nations achieve its disarmament objective. Because why were we going after Aerofina? Because we were concerned that the Iraqis were acquiring guidance and control technology that they weren't permitted to acquire. So the idea of penetrating Aerofina was to get access to the material at the source, put a tracking beacon on the material so that it could be traced back into Iraq and discovered at the secret hiding facility. We're not spying on Romania just to spy on Romania. There was a legitimate arms control purpose. Why were we listening to the signals? Because we believed that a specific frequency range was being used to coordinate the concealment activities to hide things from the inspectors. We weren't there to spy on Saddam or, or all this stuff. It was a very focused effort and the British played the game and played it right. And then they shut it down under orders of the United States. And from that moment on, the British assessments became ridiculous. They went from being some of the most stable, even-minded assessments to 45 minutes. Uh, you know, yeah, that took five example. years. That, that, that plummeting took only five years from 98 yeah. that you described, actually four years to the sex dossier, because that was 2002 already. Well, actually, no. Well, it was being written then, but it didn't come out till 2003, of course. But already in 2002, the desk officers around me were jumping up and down saying there's going to be the sex dossier. Uh, so, so John Scarlett, of course, was there, was in charge of that. Uh, so it took a very, very limited amount of time. And um, this, this isn't just reminiscing about a generation ago. This is of, of, of salutary value to others because, you know, even if you have one of the best intelligence services in the world with a very professional cadre, your experience and mine shows that just a couple of years of senior officers sure. thinking well, it's politically expedient for me to obey orders and you've lost it all. Right. And then and the other thing that happens is the professional staff that you have working at the bottom um, get disillusioned or get corrupted or get transferred. And suddenly, you know, the people doing the, 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 the groundwork, they're not the same. And if you don't have good people on the ground operating with full integrity, you can't have good analysis at the top. Uh, and so the whole thing became corrupted, became politicized. The people on the ground aren't looking for the truth. They're looking for data to sustain a preformed political position that is being thrust down from above. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, I, I, I saw those in tandem. I saw the new guys of my age, although not of my philosophy, jumping up and down on the Iraq desk or whatever else desks I could see near me saying the really sexy stuff this week is look for a link between Saddam and Al Qaeda or whatever the, 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 the cause celebre of the week yeah. was. Not do your best job. No, and again, I, I, as an intelligence officer, I was always trained <coughs> To not, not to tell my boss what they wanted to hear, but to tell them what the facts were. Mm -hmm. If my job wasn't to make my boss happy, um, if the facts made my boss unhappy, that's okay. I'm still doing my job. Uh, I, I, but my job was to give them the best information possible, the best analysis possible, and then they get to make the decision they want to make. Uh, mm -hmm. But my job wasn't to, uh, if my boss would say, um, the, I need to launch an attack up the middle over this bridge. So Ritter, come up with a, you know, give me the intelligence that sustains that course of action. And I looked at the intelligence and went, that's suicide. Uh, actually, the best course of action is to outflank here with a limit, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, I'm making all this up. Uh, my job was to tell my boss, no, the intelligence doesn't sustain that course of action. You, you know, here, here's how I rate it, A, B, C, this is D, worst. Um, and if he was unhappy, he, you know, He's unhappy with the information, not with me, because I'm giving him the honest assessment. I fail my boss when I go, oh, yeah, I, I can play with things here. And yeah, suddenly this uh, going across the bridge thing is a good idea. No, that's an intelligence failure. 
because you're not providing intelligence, you're providing a prescriptive you know, narrative that has nothing to do with reality. And here we are 20 years after that change happened, and we are projecting this onto the Russians now, so that the, the heads of intelligence services are saying Putin's top brass are afraid to tell him the truth. Pure projection of what they've experienced their whole careers. <laughs> and the funny thing is he was, he was undermined by Joe Biden. I mean, if I were the, the head of the uh, PCHQ, because I think that's who it was who gave the speech. Yes, it was. I would be furious at Joe Biden because Joe Biden gives a press conference where he says the same thing because that's what he's told to do, parrot the thing. And then he said, uh, just so you know, that's uh, that's from like fragmentary thing. I'm not really absolutely certain about it. It's just sort of what we're getting from the rumors. Well, the head of GCHQ just put his entire professional reputation on the line spewing this nonsense and Biden cut him off at the knees, yeah. which is what the Americans <laughs> always do. We yeah. cut everybody off at the knees. Allow me, allow me one other question, because both of you alluded to uh, uh, Christopher Steele and the, and, the, and the famous dossier. What is it with that dossier? Is it all fake, or was he paid to write it up, or what is it? Alex, you want to take the lead on that? And then I'll well, I mean, I, I worked with Steele for two or three years pretty closely. Um, he wasn't a fantastically corrupt man in my time. Uh -huh. I don't know about now, but in my time, his motivation was pleasing his bosses, most particularly Sir Richard Dearlove, who succeeded Scarlett, mm -hmm. the sexy dossier Iraq war guy, as head of MI6. So we're talking about the late 2000s now. And Steele was already, I think, like many MI6 guys, especially at his role as head of Russia desk, he had an eye to what next. He was he was fairly young, mid-career, and, and he was already thinking, like many guys in that position, I can have a more lucrative role uh, mm -hmm. by step, stepping out of the service into the private world and taking my Rolodex, my contacts with me. Mm -hmm. And he was already tapping the likes of me up then for, you know, what's the latest gossip you've got on Russian uh, mm -hmm. uh, inter-oligarch squabbles? How can I tout this information? So I think that uh, he remained in the dear love orbit. And I won't be very popular for saying this, but together with my UK column colleagues, I have pretty much determined that dear love is not the worst of these MI6 players. He's not actively evil. He does believe, it seems sincerely and wrongly, this narrative that the only way for the Anglo-Americans to survive in the world is to keep winning the propaganda battle against Russia and China rather than playing a straight game. But that seems to have been the basic motivation. I do think, however, that when Steele arrived in, in Washington and started making more and more connections with the FBI, which I think Scott will attest is the dirtiest of the US federal level uh, services, although it contains many fine people too, it's very politicized because it's the internal security service. Then he, he, he did, in, to some extent, fall to the bad side. I think, that it, once again, as Scott was outlining earlier, this, this suave British presentation and the impeccable track record as Sir Richard Dearloff's top guy for Russia and, you know, the, the uncontested Putin expert of his day and whatever, that probably got to his head, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I've you know, other, other colleagues and old bosses of mine whom I've spoken to since have this view of Christopher Steele. Not a bad man, rather, rather egotistical, perhaps, but within the bounds that you'd expect of that kind of MI6 officer. Mm -hmm. um, but when it gets to the details of American politics, Scott is far better placed to say what kind of poisonous nests worked upon Steele to, to induce him to come up with this stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'll give you my assessment of Christopher Steele. It's not a personal one because I didn't I didn't know him. Um, but I know how the intelligence business works, and I know how we used to play the game against the Russians, against the Soviets. Moscow rules uh, the way that uh, you know the, the 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 Russia House worked in both 
in London and in Washington, D.C., uh, the kind of people that were involved, um, and the kind of extraordinarily detailed um, preparation went into uh, the human intelligence aspect of that job, the recruitment and the running, the managing of uh, agents. Um, then Christopher Steele comes in, and he came in post-Soviet Union when Russia was the Wild West. You didn't even have to work. Fact is, the old recruiting went out the window. They no longer ran the, you know, did did, did you know run run the tricks on people uh, and all this. You just went out and you threw money around and you got sources and you banked all your sources and your sources told you whatever you wanted to hear and then you wrote it up because it was just free and it was easy and it was cheap. He was the worst kind of intelligence officer because he forgot all of his tradecraft. All of his tradecraft. He does totally agree. From having seen him up personal, that that is it. He he was easily misled by yeah. documentary submissions by jaded Russians who belonged to the anti-Putin oligarch camp, for example. Yeah, and and so, you know, his his credibility as an intelligence officer, from my my standpoint, is is no, not nil. Um, he became a reporter, not a not a human collector. Um, he didn't know how to recruit somebody. Uh, people allow themselves to be recruited as opposed to Christopher Steele doing the old the old game. Well, while we're on Christopher Steele and recruitment, he did confide in me that his preferred recruitment pool was McKinsey. <laughs> and this is very topical with the French McKinsey scandal, which is no by no means confined to France. The Blair operation, global whatever it's called, uh, was also said that if you're McKinsey, we'll take you no questions asked, just as we'll trust you as much as if we trained you ourselves which has to say a thing or two. Uh, I did bump into some of the guys who worked directly under Steele, who started off at McKinsey as well. He wasn't blagging. Wow. Okay. Um, but, but now we come to another aspect of his career, uh, because as soon as he finished his time there, I believe his name got leaked along with others uh, and was published. So his utility as a covert collector of human is gone. He's now a, an outed agent who then is sent, I believe he was sent to Paris first, and then from Paris he went to London and became the head of Russia House. Now, Russia House used to be where your best people were. Why would you take a guy who has no street credibility in Russia, has no active human management skills, uh, who has been outed um, and, and forced into management at a level beyond which he is actually capable of operating competently, and you make him head of Russia House. Um, you know, only the British can answer that question, but I will say- well, I, I, I was there and I can't answer it. All I know is that his, his immediate colleagues, superiors and juniors, they weren't hostile to him when he came into power, but uh, came into office, but they did have the attitude to me, look, Alex, what he does is new style. You'll have to ask him about who, how, who he recruits and what his reports are based on. It's not how we do business. New style, I like that. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to steal that one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, but what you know what happened is he he got involved. I believe he became the lead um, uh, MI6 investigator on the assassination attempt of Lipchenko. Um, that was that was his first few months in office. Yes, that was when yeah. we were very close to him. Yeah. But now, when you study Lipchenko, and you realize that he was one of the things he was doing, in addition to being a source of information to British intelligence and Spanish intelligence and everybody else. He also is running on behalf of an oligarch, a, um, a, 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 a an intelligence business operation. He, he, he created. Yeah. 
he, he couldn't separate the two. You know, he, he would do what they're not supposed to do at MI6. He would share his working notes, his internal pre-formal report stuff with his GCHQ opposite numbers, uh, who would say to me, because they were one desk away, uh, MI6 has never done this before. I don't know why we're being given this special treatment. But this makes sense in your discourse that he's actually turning the job into some kind of touting reporter role, selling the right. narrative of the day. And when Lutinko died, almost immediately afterwards, Steele leaves the service and creates Orbis. And yeah. I view Orbis as nothing more than Steele taking over Lutinko's business. And using <laughs> because all of his sources are the same ones that Lutinko had developed. Christopher Steele didn't bring anything new to this operation. You talk about bringing the Rolodex, he's bringing in all of the business contacts, intelligence contacts, mafia contacts that Levchenko was running yeah. on behalf yeah. of the oligarch. So that, that's Orbis, it. And there was, in fact, a crucial meeting on who done it, I think, in mid-November, just after Litvinenko died, mid-November 2006, because he died on the 1st of November, if memory serves right. Mid-November, my boss uh, went off to a meeting hosted by Steele at MI6 and came back, gave me with a, a cold stare, as he'd never really done before, and said, Alex, the case is settled. It was uh, Lugovoy who, killed, who poisoned him. You know, which was not my boss's position until he'd been to that meeting. So the narrative was sold. You will accept this. Yeah. And then, but, but Steele now, remember, Lachenko's business model wasn't a genuine intelligence business operation. It was to support an oligarch by attacking other oligarchs, by getting involved in this dirty business of, of uh, suppressing your economic opponents, et cetera. Um, and that, that was Steele's business model. And this business model, however, became, I think, um, of use during the uh, with the FIFA corruption scandal. Uh, Steele was able, through no work of his own, but through inherited sources, able to provide unique information in support of an FBI investigation into FIFA. And this suddenly, and again, now we come back to the thing that we joked about earlier. You take a guy who's selling you horse manure and you put a British accent and he's suddenly selling you gold, pure gold. And you're going to buy this pure gold. So steel is selling stuff that isn't horse manure, but it's. Well, it's, it's not, not, not to want to be snobby, but he's actually got, if I remember correctly, a Midlands background. And he certainly didn't go to a superior boarding school. And, and I think he went to Oxbridge. I'm not sure. But anyway, the old hands in the service would have looked down their noses at him as one of the plebs. And yet yeah, the Americans didn't get that. We're Americans. We don't know. It's just a British <laughs> accent. We love it. But he, he sold himself as this top-notch practitioner of human intelligence um, to his American counterparts, not only in the FBI, but also at the State Department that people were, were vouching for him. Um, and then when, when this, uh, this whole dossier thing comes along, um, you know, the, the, the origins of this are clear. He was, he was hired by a... Um, by a U.S. company whose name is eluding me because I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but... Um, um, oh, yes. It begins with a C, doesn't it? It's one that had been doing opposition research on behalf of, um, of the yes. DNC, but then when, um, when the opposition research became solely focused on Donald Trump, um, they hired Steele uh, with the express purpose of uh, getting the dirt on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And Steele went into this in a way that an intelligence officer is never supposed to. He brought his personal bias in. Mm -hmm. uh, he hated Donald Trump. He, mm -hmm. This was not just an intelligence project. This was a project of passion. 
he wanted to get get this finished. Um, yeah, I mean, the context, of course, was that the British establishment um, at the time, and UK Column was covering this all through that period, mid 2010s, was we are about to lose the Americans. Under Trump, they're going to go off on their own. Of course, the yeah. previous director of GCHQ, Hannigan, resigned in a great hurry when Trump's election was confirmed in January 2017. That was the context. It went through everything through to nuclear um, uh, weapons policy. The thought was, in fact, one guy, the uh, Soros uh, think tank guy, Nick Whitney at the European CFR, even said at the at Rusi, a British think tank in London, uh, if we can't house train Trump, we're going to have to go around him. So that was the context in which Trump and his superiors, Dearlov, particularly hated, uh, sorry, Steele and his superior Dearlov particularly hated Trump because they thought we we're about to lose the game with which we won the Cold War. Wasn't wasn't the name uh, of so that private investigative firm Fusion GPS or something? Fusion, Fusion GPS, there yeah. it is. Yep, mm -hmm. Fusion GPS, absolutely. And one of the Fusion GPS's, uh, the, 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 the head of it, again, whose name I used to know, but I don't have it. You know, he was a, a Wall Street Journal journalist. Uh, his specialty was taking business intelligence and weaponizing it into the media to achieve a, uh, you know, to achieve a, a discernible... The absolute opposite, Scott, of what you did, because you did what was known as sanitizing, taking all the juiciest bits out of intelligence and making it duller. And of course, what journalism does is sexes things up. Sexes, and that's that's exactly. And so, one of the whole things that Christopher Steele was involved in, uh, that that the narrative shows that he he was doing this in the fall, um, was selling his product to the media. Remember, he did have a fusion GPS would organize uh, get-togethers with various journalists, and then Christopher Steele would brief them, and some of them bought into it, some of them didn't buy into it, etc. That took place in the fall. But what's 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 interesting about this is when you take a look at um, when Steele first brought out his, his initial reports, uh, everybody says, oh, nobody paid attention. Now we found out that everybody paid attention. The FBI received these, the FBI acted on them. But, um, you know, Senator Reid, um, who was the, at that time the, uh, either the Speaker of the House or if, uh, I think he was a, not Speaker of the House, the uh, Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. Uh, from Nevada. Uh, from Nevada. Pardon, uh, from Nevada. He, he actually received something from um, the FBI. Uh, and the reason why I say the FBI is that when he took it and he confronted the head of the CIA in a meeting in August, early August, um, they told uh, James uh, Comey uh, that you needed to Reed wrote a letter where he specifically chastised the head of the FBI for uh, not getting on board, not doing what needs to be done to make this source available. And the, and the question is, what source? It's not a CIA source. So this isn't the uh, the Russian double agent that um, that the CIA director Brennan um, was you know was was running in violation of everything, uh, be feeding Obama intelligence written by the by the by the Kremlin. Uh, fed him through this double agent uh, to influence Obama's action. It wasn't this, because that would be a CIA only. This was the FBI, and the only information this time of that character, uh, especially information that dealt with um, the, the, the guy um, who, uh, who traveled to Russia. He, 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 he was the one who got his uh, phone. Was it Denisov? No, no, the, the, it's an American. Um, uh, oh yes, who wrote that fantastic book? Yes, the the Cypriot guy, um, no, Papadopoulos. No, 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 no. Um, 
the one who the FISA the FISA warrants were um, oh uh, Lee Lee something like that. Uh, he was arrested, right? Well, no, they, he he was exonerated. Um, oh, he, he was. He's, he's the one. He's the one guy that walked away with this thing, uh, totally exonerated. He he, you know, he's the guy that got approached by the by the G, uh, the GR uh, the, not the GRU the uh, by the Russians in New York, and he report he worked with the FBI as a cooperating uh, witness that ended up getting these two Russians arrested. And then he traveled to Moscow in July, and he met with uh, people. And Christopher Steele wrote this up, and as as he was, uh, you know, that that he was meeting with, um, you know, the the top people coordinating on the release of the WikiLeaks stuff, um, and it was all a lie. But Steele's write up of this made it to from the FBI to Reed, and Reed references it in his letter. So you know that it's the Steele dossier. And this is the earliest infusion of the Steele dossier for political purposes that most people ignore now because everybody talks about what happened in the fall when the FBI uh, fired him from his contract. Um, but the fact that the FBI claims that's when they first started receiving this information. But the facts, the fact trail shows that the FBI actually received this information in um, in, 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 in early July. Um, and it was Peter Strzok who received this information, uh -huh. and it guided Strzok's decision to expand uh, the the Operation Hurricane. I think they called it into a counterattack. So the Steele dossier actually played a huge role in shaping everything that happened down the road. It's not this bit player near the end that everybody talks about. It was early on, and it was done by the head of Fusion GPS who is the one who used his contacts to get a hold of um, of Peter Strzok. So you know, Christopher Simpson. Steele. Is that Glenn, Glenn Simpson? Simpson. Mm -hmm. Glenn Simpson, that's exactly the guy. And I, uh, Carter Page, Carter Page yeah. is the, uh, yeah. the, the, the the other American. He, he was the, the foot in the door guy, the, the, the Trump campaign guy who was the pretext to start an intelligence operation. Right, but he, but he was actually just a, a guy who oversold himself as everybody does um, and was as innocent as the day is long. I mean, he truly was this this traveling innocent who was just bouncing around thinking he was doing the right thing and everybody's misreading what he's doing. Christopher Babes Steele. abroad. Yeah, he got, he got, Christopher Steele got the rumors. Um, you know, he met with the presidential uh, advisor. But the, the guy had a brush, I mean, it, maybe it was an old school brush, brush pass, but it really was, hey, hey, how you doing? To see you. Yeah, I'm going to listen to your speech. Hey, good day. Talk, good talking to you. That was it. That got turned into an intimate conversation where they discussed the, you know, X, Y, and C. And this was used to get FISA warrants to uh, illegally um, spy on uh, Carter Page and the Trump enterprise. So, mm -hmm. you know, Christopher Steele is um, a man that if he ever travels to the United States, I think will be arrested on site and, and properly prosecuted. Just like or, Prince Andrew. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Different story, but yes. <laughs> oh my God, I like these war stories. Um, this is this is incredible. I mean, really, I think this is going to uh, this is going to make people's jaws drop. Uh, extremely interesting. Extremely 
interesting insights into both of your trades, which is basically the same, I would say. Um, very, very good. I love that. Um, it's a very dark subject, but um, you made it a very light one, and uh, you're you're still being you're still able to make fun of it. You know, my father used to tell me, um, you you've got to do the right thing, but still try and have fun doing it. And I think that's what yeah. what this is all but, about. But our replacements, Reiner, can't make fun of it because oh they God. are ideologically committed. They mm -hmm. have a stick up their rear ends, and they take it so deathly seriously, and they see the world in monochrome, right? So. Mm -hmm. To them, there is no humor. That, that that which the Brits and Americans used to be known for, self-effacement, not taking themselves too seriously, you know, that's completely gone out the window now. Uh. So, and, and, uh, one last war story, and then I've got to run. But uh, again, with DIS, uh, in the early 1990s, um, they, they had one of their classic Christmas parties. And um, and as, as the British are wont to do, they were going to put on a bit of theater. Pantomime. And so they um, they created a, um, a a a fake play, um, but they they had the different characters that were um, going to be involved. And so you you had the different characters and who in Hollywood would play them, you know, and all that. And so my character was going to be played by George C. Scott, you know, of, of, of Patton, yeah. and because I was I was uh, I was often made fun of, of the way that I would stand in front of the inspection teams and give them the Patton speech you know, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it was all good fun because, you know, it was serious business we were involved in, but if you couldn't laugh about it, you'd go insane. You had to laugh about it. You had to have fun. You had to be human. You had to be able to make fun of people and take right. fun being directed at you because it wasn't meant to hurt. It was meant to bring joy <laughs> actually yeah. to people. Right. So our replacements have gone insane on the job and that's why they can't laugh at themselves. Yeah. I don't disagree with you at all. Um, okay, well, unfortunately, I'm, I'm getting the high sign that I, I have to go and prepare for another uh, another meeting. But um, I, I thank you very much for inviting me. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you guys, and I hope um, down the road we our paths can cross again. I'm sure we will. It was a uh, it was sheer pleasure, <laughs> despite the topic. Thank you so much, Scott, for taking the time, thank and thank much. you very much, Alex, as well. Much obliged. Thank you. Thank okay, you, guys. Alex, pleasure. Take Bye. it easy and have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. Okay, thank you. Das war der Kracher. Das war der Kracher. Es ist der Wahnsinn, Natürlich besteht die Möglichkeit, dass sie uns irgendeinen Kram erzählen. There's a chance that they tell us stories, but that's not a likely um, scenario. It's very plausible. It all fits. It all fits what we've heard before. Boy, oh boy. At the end of the day, it's all an illusion that we uh, have to see through. Holy smokes. Well, so we're at the end of uh, what I find a, a very uh, successful uh, meeting. Right, yes, we still should still have the federal um, um, minister of foreign affairs of the federal Re uh, banana republic of germany um, um, uh, professor dr annalina baerbock um, 
who wrote the book My uh, Life to be found in the fiction section and who wrote a book about future visions, male or female, uh, for a debtor Europe. Why the Green Party's candidate for chancellor did not make it uh, uh, to the race for uh, chancellor. She should have spoken about the high uh, good of freedom of speech, uh, a solution for the cobalt problem. Why we uh, why does this? Why we need this? Uh, why do we need cobalt-free batteries? Why we need a top tax rate of 45 euro? And how she wants to strengthen Germany as a location for negotiation. Um, unfortunately, uh, she didn't make it here because she still hasn't managed to uh, topple a bucket of water without somebody else's. Uh, help, but nevertheless, we had a good meeting today. Uh, great, very, very thrilling, and very good to see these two guys in a very good mood. And we've got a couple of videos uh, to start the weekend with. A short clip from our Canadian pathologist Roger Hodgson, who was with it. Very clear words, and another not so short video, but extremely. Um, informative video on a hearing in the US Senate. I think Mr. Gatz, who did that hearing, and uh, someone, uh, an intelligence officer, um, about Hunter Biden's laptop that uh, disappeared all of a sudden. But he's got that hard disk. <clears throat> Mr. Gatz has got that hard disk. And we've got two music videos. One is that Aeon uh, State Enemy and Rising Appalachia. Let's uh, watch it. But first of all, you've got to close our session and take leave from the audience. Yes, as Reiner said, we're at the end of a, another meeting that really brought us, uh, took us forward, and it's really hard to grapple all of this. Next week, uh, there's uh, the decision to be taken, I think, on the 7th of April concerning the uh, vaccination, uh, vaccination mandates. I'm curious to see what the upshot will be. There'll be uh, interesting activities that we will uh, develop over the next few days to point out to people that this is not a good idea and to point this out particularly about the decision makers. It's no good idea. They all will be uh, prosecuted due to murder. Yes, I wouldn't uh, want to um, get blood on my hands there. Uh, right. So otherwise, thanks for watching. And uh, we can only do our work if we get your support. Uh, you do support us in this. Um, it's really great. And I hope that we can continue to count on the support, particularly for the uh, uh, pending uh, projects and Oval Media uh, do this, uh, uh, the technical end here, and they do it on an honorary basis. So thank you very much. Um, and uh, I hope that you learn a bit f from the videos that we'll see. So I wish you a nice uh, Friday evening and a nice weekend. Have see you next nice, week. Have a nice weekend. There's an overwhelming consensus that nothing worked. Nothing could work, nothing did work, and nothing will work. That includes the vaccinations, which are not just unnecessary, experimental, untested, and are actually killing people. I want to take this moment to point a finger directly at the principal cause of why we're all here today. And it's not the government. No, it's us physicians who have been intimidated by our colleges, both provincially and internationally. 
If physicians had not been intimidated by the very body that is supposed to protect you from me, if they'd been allowed to speak their mind without the threat of losing their income and their positions, then an individual patient, such as you and me, in a closed examining room, would have been told the truth. The truth. They have been denied that ability to do that. We have had that for centuries. The two principal medical ethics have been trampled on by this government. First do no harm and informed consent. First do no harm has been trampled on. The mandates have killed, as we've heard, more people, many more people than, than they've saved. But informed consent, I would put it to you, how can you give informed consent if you are not informed? And you have been denied information intentionally by the colleges that are supposed to protect you. So I say this, putting a point on it, the colleges of physicians and surgeons across this country and internationally are co-conspirators with government in state-sanctioned murder. Thank you. Thank you. Where is it? The laptop. Sir, I'm not here to talk about the laptop. I'm here to talk about the FBI cyber program. You are the assistant director of FBI cyber. I want to know where Hunter Biden's laptop is. Where is it? Sir, I don't know that answer. That is astonishing to me. Is, has, has FBI cyber assessed whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop could be a point of vulnerability, allowing America's enemies to hurt our country? Sir. The FBI cyber program is based off of what's codified in Title 18, or, um, Title 18, Section 1030, a code which talks about computer intrusions, right, using nefarious intent. Network well, you've talked about passwords here. I mean, Hunter Biden's password on his laptop was Hunter 02. He drops it off at a repair store. I'm holding the receipt from Max Computer Repair, where in December 2019, they turned over this laptop to the FBI, and what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director of FBI cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. How are Americans supposed to trust that you can protect us from the next colonial pipeline if it seems that you can't locate a laptop that was given to you three years ago from the first family, potentially creating vulnerabilities for our country? Sir, it's, it's not in the purview of my investigative responsibilities. But, but that is shocking that, that you wouldn't, as the assistant director of cyber, know whether or not there are international business deals, kickbacks, shakedowns that are on this laptop that would make the first family suspect to, to some sort of compromise. Mr. Assistant Director, have you assessed whether or not the first family is compromised as a result of the Hunter Biden laptop? Sir, as a representative of the FBI cyber program, it is not in the realm of my responsibilities to deal with the questions that you're asking me. Has anyone at FBI cyber been asked to make assessments whether or not the laptop creates a point of vulnerability? Sir, we have multiple lines of investigative responsibility in the FBI. They're all available on public source. Well, I would think you'd know this one. I mean, I would think that if the president's son, who does international business deals, referencing the now president with the Chinese, with Ukrainians. I mean, have you assessed whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop gives Russia the ability to harm our country? Sir, again, 
We can do this back and forth for the next couple of minutes. I don't have any information about the Hunter Biden laptop or the investigation. Should you? I mean, you're the assistant director of FBI cyber. I might buy the block and line chart. No, sir, I should not. Who should, who should we put in that chair to ask questions about this laptop that FBI has had for three years? Sir, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a position to make a recommendation of who should say So you don't have it. You don't know who has it. You don't know where it is. You're the assistant director. You know, earlier you talked about whether or not you were the Grant Hill or the Christian Leitner. It sounds like you're the Chris Weber trying to call a timeout when you don't have one. So I mean, who is it? Do you even know who has it? Do you know who we should put in that chair to ask these questions to? No, sir, I don't know who has it. Well, it, could you find out and tell us? You're going to have to give us briefings, thanks to Mr. Liu and Mr. Massey's question, about whether or not the FBI was taking a $5 million test drive on the Pegasus system that was being used to target people in politics, people in government, people in the media, people in American life. So will you commit to give us a briefing as the assistant director of FBI Cyber as to where the laptop is, whether or not it's a point of vulnerability, whether or not the American people should wonder whether or not the first family is compromised? Sir, I'd be happy to take your request back to our office. Gosh, I mean, will you advocate for that briefing? As in, you, you will? I will be happy to take your request back to FBI headquarters. Well, will you, do you believe that that is a briefing that the Congress is, is worthy of having, I guess? Sir, I'm, I am, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm here to talk. The invitation, sir, the invitation says oversight of the FBI cyber division. It does not say anything. Well, well right, but I mean, this is this is a cyber asset. This it's is a point a of vulnerability. Asset. If there are passwords, if there are business deals, if there are references to things that could harm our country, like you can't even sit here right now and say that you know that there's not a point of vulnerability. Maybe there are other crimes, maybe there are tax issues or whatever, but as it relates to our, I mean, it, is the first family sufficient cyber infrastructure to protect? You don't even know if they're compromised. Tell you what, Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, which I'm in possession of. I'm not. Hmm? There's no objection to that. So I can't say no objections. I've never had. I will object pending further uh, investigation. And what's the basis of that objection? It's a unanimous consent request, and I object then. Well, I have a subsequent question. Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt. It may very well be. Of the Mac shop. It may very well be entered into the record after we look at it further. Very well, Mr. Chairman, um, I have a subsequent unanimous consent. Oh, I'm sorry. Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt from the Department Mr. of Mr. Justice. Mr. Chairman, this is Mr. Deming. Am I next? Or, without, or am I without, next? Or? Without, without objection. Also erstens bin ich gegen eine Impfpflicht. Ich habe die ganze Zeit gesagt. Mandate, I always said that I'm against the vaccination mandate and I uh, stick to it. And we, uh, if you promise that there won't be a vaccination mandate, then you have to uh, stick by this promise. Uh, everybody knows that I'm uh, for a vaccination uh, mandate. A uh, vaccination mandate uh, is untenable.
no vaccination mandate, but responsibility. Let's introduce a vaccination mandate in, in Germany at last. Und spalten und zwischen uns ihre Gräben ziehen. Sie propagieren den Hass, doch unsere Liebe können sie uns nicht nehmen. Wir blicken hinter die Matrix und dekodieren sie. Die Fragen, die wir stellen, sind unangenehm für ihr System. Sie wollen uns ausradieren, Kanäle wegzensieren. Sie nennen uns Nazis, wenn wir demokratisch demonstrieren. Man nennt uns unsolidarisch, obwohl gerade wir die freie Entscheidung von anderen tolerieren und akzeptieren. Verrückte Welt, jetzt ist jeder Mensch ein Verdächtiger. Potenziell gefährlich, kommt drauf an, was der QR-Code sagt. Die Zeit, in der es begann, Dystopia wird langsam wahr. Grüße an Orwell, bester Mann, Digga, vorhergesagt. Sie nennen uns Staatsfeind, dabei wollen wir doch nur leben und frei sein. Wir gehen auf die Straße für Frieden und Gleichheit. Wir marschieren mit der Liebe zum Menschsein und es erklingt der Ruf. Frieden, Freiheit, keine Diktatur, es Millionen Existenzen einfach so im Stich gelassen Moralische Narrative verfasst von Twitter-Bubbles Ungeimpfte Pfleger, vor zwei Jahren waren sie Helden Heute werden sie abgemahnt und gekündigt, wo soll das enden? Gesundheit steht über allem, dann erklärt uns warum Pflegepersonal so miserabel bezahlt wird bei uns 4000 Betten abgebaut wurden auf den Stationen Während doch da draußen die Pandemie des Jahrhunderts tobt Kleine Kinder haben stundenlang eine Maske auf Bekommen gesagt, dass Omas und stirbt und dann hören sie Drauf. Sie werden psychisch krank und leiden dann an Angstzuständen. Macht die Augen auf, dieser Wahnsinn muss endlich enden. Sie nennen uns Staatsfeind, dabei wollen wir doch nur leben und frei sein. Wir gehen auf die Straße für Frieden und Gleichheit. Wir marschieren mit der Liebe zum Menschsein und es erklingt der Ruf. Frieden, Freiheit, keine Diktatur, es erklingt der Ruf. Frieden, Freiheit, keine Diktatur. Step up, be loud. 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 Step up,